Welcome back, everyone, to another pre-recorded episode of The Occasionalists. Matt Pagel here, once again with Adam Chemalewski, even though we haven't really moved since our last recording. Um, but, uh, Chema, we are continuing our month of, or best of, question mark, um, episodes that you and I are handpicking, uh, going back through some of our early episodes, and we are, um, <clears throat> and, and we are sort of picking out the ones that we found interesting uh, from previous years. So we just, uh, last week we, we covered RoboCop, our RoboCop drunk cast slash cinema dissection. Uh, that one was a lot of fun. And thanks for, thanks for updating me on some of the, some of the things that we talked about on there. Like it, uh, th- that was definitely like a nice little, um, refresher on some of the things we did previously. Oh, definitely, dude. Definitely. It was really good to like go back to a couple of years when, you know, we just first started doing this and everything. And yeah. I gotta say that was a really fun ass episode. Yeah, absolutely. Um, something we definitely need to figure out when we can do that again on a, on yes. a, on a weekend night because that was fun. Oh, All right. Yeah. So uh, Chuma had RoboCop, and I am going to kick us off with an episode uh, from right before the pandemic, before the the, sh- the lockdown started uh, nationwide, and it's our very first episode that kicked off eight straight episodes uh, of the of a similar vein. And that's the the villains from February twenty fifth, twenty twenty. Um, we have the villains parts one and two, and then we had then you and I both had recommendation episodes. You had the third spin. I had uh, right. movie recommendations, and then we hopped into heroes one and two, and then um, heroic music and heroic movie recommendations after that. So it was eight mm-hmm. consecutive episodes in the same vein. Oh yeah. So when I was going through the Podbean app, listen, trying to select the episodes. I could not believe how big a chunk of that hero's villain section is devoted to like the, the, the section on the website. I was like, yeah. wow, Jesus. I totally <laughs> forgot we did some of these. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was one of those things like it, as we were going through the villains, I just remember very specifically um, that like the first episode was just like, we were like at two and a half hours and we had just finished the first page of right. a two page. And we were just like, well, these and I'm, and I'm like, you know, I wrote the, I wrote the Heroes one in a very similar way. So we're like, well, we, these are both, they have to be two-parters. Like, there's yeah. no way this is a singular part. And like, and if I remember correctly, didn't we split up the recording over like three days? Oh, yes, we did. Like, the, I remember us doing the episode and it was just like, okay, we for the sake of like conversation endurance or whatever term I invented for that day, um, was like, all right, let's just, you know, resume this next week and that's exactly what we did yeah. yeah yeah so it was it was a big chunk but it was a it was a fun big chunk um to, to do that i i really really love this episode so I, I wanted to go back i wanted to go back um for that reason to sort of like just essentially remember if this was as good as i was remembering um so i, I definitely wanted to go back to that and and then um i also part of it was also like i wonder what we were talking about pre-pandemic um and yeah. <laughs> like because that I, I was thinking about this and I purposely was like, I'm not going to pick anything from the pandemic because there's going to right. be discussion in the in the episode, no matter what we were doing about it. Like, no doubt about it. So I kind of avoided that for that reason. So I was kind of curious, what were we talking about before? And oddly enough, we weren't talking about infectious diseases. Um, right. So whatever it is, what it is. So that's 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 what we're going. That's what I'm going to that's what I'm teeing up here is the villains part one uh, from February 25th, 2020. Uh, so here's your here's your lightning round, uh, Chema. Uh, lightning round question, Chema. Um, okay. This is something we we talked about in, in especially in regards to one of the one of the villain archetypes that we were 
that is uh it's one of the last ones we talked about so it's one of the newer ones in terms of its emergence in literature and in uh, film and tv obviously and it was an mm-hmm. archetype called the other hero do you remember do you remember what that specifically was about okay i can't remember the specific examples that we talked about but knowing this other hero i have the direct i have an idea of where you're going okay so. yes so the other hero and i'm not even to the question yet but um the other hero is um basically if you just essentially change the point of view of the movie you don't even need to change the actions in the movie the, nothing else the dialogue you just change the point of view and mm-hmm. suddenly the villain becomes the hero um right th- like the things that the villain are doing are actually they might be doing them in a way that you don't agree with but what they're trying to do is in fact something that would be in the right point of view is considered heroic and we use the example of uh killmonger um like if you if you break down what he's doing and his mm-hmm. story, it's actually a heroic story. It's just that we're not seeing his point of view. Right, exactly. Yes. So long, long, long roundabout to get to this question, this lightning round question. What movie, and you don't have to, it doesn't have to be just a very simple point of view shift, but just keep in, in the same spirit here. What movie do you think would work better with the villain as a protagonist? Well, okay, considering the time that we live in, I'm going to keep it in the MCU. And that's this is the Thanos thing here. Yeah. And I will tell you that... Um, <laughs> Knocking out like a significant part of the population and stuff like that via snap. I gotta say there's, there's a little bit of like logic there, you know? And, Mm -hmm. um, not only is that something that, um, I jokingly say, obviously I don't mean that seriously, but, um, the way that they set up Thanos in the infinity war and us actually getting to like, see his journey to get the infinity stones, Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's basically it, right? I mean, you could take out the Avengers and that's still a really good movie about Thanos fighting Infinity Stones and everything. So, like, the Avengers don't even really need to be in that movie. And when, um, along, you know, before Infinity War came out, I kind of heard this, like, you know, online rumblings about how, like, oh, Thanos is, like, the main character and stuff. And, like, I wouldn't say that he is, like, the main character, but, like, he is by far, like, it doesn't get any more of a... um, you don't get any more camera time and not being a main character than it does in an infinity war. So, I mean, I guess you maybe could argue that he's the main character. I I don't think that I would jump on that. Uh, but, uh, however, that is a definitive example of it being the other hero. And I can tell you that if the Avengers weren't in that movie, you'd probably see a lot of people rooting for what Thanos is trying to do, especially if the movie came out last week. Yeah, yeah very true. Um, I, well, I will say this for sure. If, if, the, if, the, uh, if all things being equal and Thanos, you know, Thanos was our protagonist, um, you and I both know that Thanos would be co-opted by the Proud Boys, Stormfront. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's exactly who would be cheering on Thanos to wipe right. out half of half of the half of civilization. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. And and in weird in some weird way, I, I guess I'm kind of like surprised that um these groups have not adopted him as some type of like secondary figure, you know, like a like a, almost like a secondary logo mm-hmm. type thing. And um I, I will say that uh, as far as like white supremacists go, they're missing a pretty good marketing opportunity, but also fuck them. Yeah. <laughs> Actually leave Thanos alone. Stick with fucking yeah. Happy the Frog. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. 
I take the Jared Leto Joker. I will give yeah, you that one. There you go. All right. So, um, yeah, and like I kind of briefly touched on, I, I picked this episode because I wanted to sort of double back on it to see if it was as good as I remember. And it definitely is. It's a little it's a little slower than I remember. But if if I am remembering correctly, part of that is sort of the, as you mentioned, the, the sort of conversational fatigue or whatever um, that we kind of hit. But also um, we pick up, we, we go from sort of definitions to sort of examples in the second mm-hmm. episode. And the second episode picks up a little bit more. But if you're like, if you are interested in sort of everyone out there, if you are interested in sort of the, uh, you know, the, you know, the classic archetypes of villains and some of the newer ones, you know, the examples form and what they mean to a story. This is like, this is almost like reading sort of like a medical textbook on that. Like we really get into it. So this was definitely like as, as good as I remember it being. Yeah. That is the deepest of deep dives into um, these archetypes that we've ever done. Yeah. Yeah. This is a good, this is a good one for anybody um, trying to number one, just like listen to some good talk about villains. But if you really want to uh, hear us getting into the nitty gritty of it, that's definitely an episode mm-hmm. we're checking out. So here's here. There's two things that surprised me, and I'll start off with the one that um, is kind of funny and offbeat, but it involves you, and you've gotten better at this. Um, but in this episode, Chema, I swear to God that I can hear everything that you are doing with your mouth. Be you smoking, drinking, eating, chewing, I can hear you so fucking clearly. And I Interesting. never really sure why I noticed I didn't notice that before, but um, I'm guessing that everyone who does listen out there has now heard you drinking water or smoking perhaps a, a marijuana cigarette or a regular cigarette. Um, but um, it's like you are loud as fuck. <laughs> but really, yes, you're so fucking loud. Um, it, maybe it's it's one of those things I don't really hear it while. We're recording because, you know, I'm talking or it's just not it's just not like it could be one of those things that I'm hearing or I'm sort of mentally just blocking out because I hear it. And it's just like, yeah. okay, whatever, not a big deal. Um, but like it is very present upon replay. <laughs> but you've gotten a lot better at that uh, in, in recent times. Well, that is definitely good to know. Like, I'm trying to think of, like, what was so different, but um, I will make a note of that going forward. It could have been, did you have a different microphone two years ago? I, I, might, I think I was using a different set of headphones, which, because like, I'm using these Bose Can headphones with the microphones built in, and I think mm-hmm. back then I was using the, um, the Apple, like, um, the plug with the yeah. little thing on the cord mm-hmm. that you can make the volume adjustment. I pr- that's probably where that comes from. Because it's there's a couple of times I'm going to give you an example, legitimate like this, <clears throat> like in the really? middle of the. <laughs> it's just like I'm like holy shit. Um, so, but like I really maybe it's I don't know maybe you're still doing. It. I don't notice it now if you're not doing it, and uh, clearly I didn't notice it then. Otherwise, would have I would have said something to you. Like, legitimately, yeah. I would have been like, hey, Chema, by the way, I can hear your fucking bong bubbling. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, like, but I didn't, I did not notice it until, like, until the re-listen, so, but whatever. Um, but the, one of the things that I, that I did, I was really surprised at, it wasn't just, like, the depth of the, um, it wasn't just, like, the depth of the, um, of the information that we had for the examples, but it mm-hmm. was, like, we had some really, really good sort of, like, applications to story. For how, so, you know, so it's like, here's the definition, and then almost like if we were, like, teaching a class, 
like here's how you would most effectively apply that into a story and why you would apply that in the story and like what you know what it means for both hero and villain it was yeah it was really like it was a really sort of instructional kind of um kind of episode that was really interesting in that regard yeah i definitely remember bringing out the professor hat that day that's for sure yeah absolutely so um so for this episode there's nothing really there's nothing really particular to disagree with Right. Like, again, it's sort of like reading a, a fucking encyclopedia. Like, you can't disagree mm-hmm. where England is. It's, it's just there. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so nothing. So, you know, this is more of an explainer and, and descriptive and a little bit more subjective, too. There's not really a lot to disagree with. Um, but certainly I agree with the the examples that we brought up in terms to reinforce the points. I agree with those wholeheartedly. I think that we did an excellent job of laying out exactly why you know why the mirror is this way and what it means you know why you as a writer would use the mirror um villain archetype um in a particular story versus why you might use something like the other hero which sounds similar but does have a different um is sort of a different way to um to do the hero villain dichotomy so i Mm -hmm. we did an excellent job of that hell yeah we did all right um anything else uh before i introduce this episode I do not, dude. Go ahead and take it away. All right. So that is, here we go, with the Villains Part 1 from February 25th, 2020, before the world fell apart. Um, uh, So this is one of the last things that we did before that happened. Enjoy the episode. Two players. Two sides. One is light. One is dark. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Occasionalists. Matt Pagel here once again with Adam Chemaluski. Chema, how are we today? Dude, I'm feeling great, ready to do this. How about you, man? What are you feeling? I'm feeling good, too, and I am really pumped for this episode. Uh, We're we're going to kind of uh, skip some of the things that we normally start off with, because we have a feeling this is going to be a long one. It could be a two-parter. Chema and I, we're going to talk... Actually, I don't even have an episode title for this one yet, but we're just, for right now, calling it Good vs. Evil. Um, Chem and I are going to dive into, dive into storytelling motifs and, um, you know, actually address, um, actual individual villain types, individual, uh, hero types. There's a whole lot that's going to be going on here. Um, so we're just going to, we're just going to dive right into it. Um, Chema before, and just a quick question sort of before we get into everything here, did you, um, when you, when you think about like, well, first off. Any ideas for the episode title for this? Because I really sort of lost on it. I didn't want to do like heroes and villains, good guys, bad guys. I just sort of like titled this because I couldn't think of anything else. Well, it does suck that a band has already taken this name, but I did like something like bad, bad, good, good or something. Like mm-hmm. bad, the, the band is called bad, bad, not good. But um, maybe as we get through the episode, I will think of the title for okay. it. I can't get think of anything right off the top of my yeah, head. Yeah, I think I think something will emerge. As we uh, as we get deeper into this, but I but I am curious. Um, just when you're when you think about like when I just say good versus evil, and you think about it like in a story format, what like what pops into your head immediately? What are the first things you see or or think about? See or think about? Okay, thank you very much for that. I was looking at a couple of notes here. Um, the first thing that I actually think about is like a showdown, like two forces, whether it being people or animals or cartoons. I see like a showdown in the end, like a confrontation of the good and evil meeting each other at some point for, you know, the big finale. 
Yeah, same here. That like the first thing I think of is literally two people facing each other. That's like the first like like image that I have in my mind is like almost like an old west showdown, like two gunslingers, you know, from you know fifty yards away looking right at each other. That's exactly yeah. what I think about. Yeah, every single time it's just a cla- like that image is just such a classic thing in our life and in pop culture and in the culture of the zeitgeist that um, it is. It's almost like there's no other way you could really paint that picture. And it, and it's and it's one of those things. I think if you were to go culture to culture. And this is just some uh, based on some of the, the research I've done. If you were to go culture to culture, that image would be almost universal of two mm-hmm. people facing each other down. It would almost be a universal thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, look at the way like movies are throughout the world and even just early cinema, like early examples of kung fu movies. It is always, you know, the bad guy facing the good guy getting ready to fight each other. And as you go into like um, – other, you know, other like European and other things, these are just like a classic archetype of what confrontation is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So now, now let's really get into it here. I just wanted to ask that off the rip because I was kind of, I couldn't exactly, I didn't know exactly how to ask that question or where to put it, but you know, whatever. But let's, uh, let's get into it right now though. Um, when we talk good and evil, what do you think, why do you think that this is the, the main motif? This might be the f- most fundamental story motif in in all of human oral history why do you think storytellers have settled on like a good versus evil dichotomy okay i completely agree with you and it is the most fundamental principle of storytelling like throughout the course of our existence since they've been able to tell stories um i don't okay i guess to explain this i feel that the good represents like everything that we're want or we're told we're supposed to want or how we're supposed to feel. And this is almost universal throughout the course of time. Like people want to feel safe. People want to feel loved. People want to feel a certain level of admiration. You know, like I'm not necessarily saying everybody wants to have like 50 million followers or be, you know, admired as some kind of icon. But Mm -hmm. I think in some way, shape or form, we all thrive for some level of admiration or acknowledgement in some way. And the good or the hero that we see in these stories is a representation of all of these things and everything that we have seen that we're like supposed to want. And the evil is like the antithesis of that. And stories mirror our lives in the sense that we want to conquer these villains, these bad guys, whether they be humans, whether it be our own personal troubles, whatever it is. And we want to have that catharsis of like normalcy and feeling safe and happy and proud and admired and everything. And I think stories are like a reflectant of that. And it's been this classic theme throughout uh, the course of people being able to tell stories. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like that. And and I'm going to piggyback off that with sort of the, you know, the the very intrinsic nature of stories that you know, like you can, you and I can tell a story about anything. You know, I know you're, you're, you're uh, doing your screenwriting thing there out in LA. And at some level, every story that you write is in some way, shape or form about you. It's mm-hmm. about something in your life that you've thought about. Um, it's, it's something that's plaguing you, bothering you, or something that you're just happy about that you're, you're interested in. It's, it's personal. Even if you are trying to make it for the masses, it's still personal. Every exactly. single story is personal. And mm-hmm. so we, as, as, the, as the storytellers, want to see ourselves as the good people, um, generally speaking. We want to we be on the good side. So 
every story that we've been telling throughout human history is about why, why we're right. Why our actions were correct, our actions were the good things. And when you go back, you know, before written language, when, you know, when, uh, I'm not going to say cavemen, but, you know, you go back 30,000, 40,000 years ago uh, before written language, stories were pretty simplistic, and, you know, it was about you know, the things you did that day. But it was also about, like, surviving, it was about surviving the world. You know, you go back far enough, your day-to-day was just survival. And those are the kind of stories that, those are the kind of stories that set us up for, um, you know, the, the, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I'm not going to call it evil, but, you know, man versus nature, you know, are like our first real stories. And mm-hmm. because they're personal, we sort of, ha- we kind of set this thing up where I'm talking about how, like, you know, if you and I were in the cave or whatever, after like a long hunt, that story is going to be about how you and I survived the hunt. We survived like this, the buffalo or the wildebeest or the mammoth or whatever. So we're putting ourselves in the in the position to be right and just and good. And everything that we faced and conquered is inherently not on our side. Evil probably isn't the right word, but mm-hmm. it's inherently against us. You know, that's the the antagonist, if you will. Um, so like it it starts from probably like our first stories. Our very, very first stories were probably about us versus something else and why we were right to do what we did. Yeah, exactly. That's right. And those stories reinforce the decisions that we made. It reinforces the beliefs that we want to have, the emotions that we want to have, the safety we want to have, everything. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, kind of as a counterpoint to this, though, do you, in your research and anything you knew offhand, do you know any like well-known stories that sort of buck this structure in some way? Okay, I I know they did their Hollywood magic and Hollywood storytelling and crafting and butchering with the original story, but my mind went immediately to Troy, mm. where the villains do just outright storm and win in the end and everything. I can't. I know the Gre- that the Greeks are evil. The Greeks are the bad, yeah. are the bad guys. They they are yes, and they have like the tragic hil- hero of Achilles amongst them and everything, mm-hmm. but. The end of Troy, like when I saw it in the theater, had got me because it was, at least at the time, it was the only movie that I saw where, like, not only did the bad guys just outright trounce everybody in the end, but it was really fucking brutal. I mean, we're talking just like stabbings and like when Agamemnon just kills Priam with a spear through the back. I mean, those moments, like, it really stuck with me, like, as Mm -hmm. a young guy. I remember seeing this in the fucking theater. So, um, I would ha- I can't remember like uh, it's been so long since I've like even opened up my copy of the Iliad, but I can't remember like if the Iliad ends with the Greeks doing that. I think that the Trojan War isn't even the Trojan Horse isn't even in the Iliad, so I'm a little far removed from that. But my mind went immediately to the 2004 Wolfgang Peterson Brad Pitt starring film Troy. Yeah, that's it's a good one, and actually it's really interesting because uh, Odysseus. Who doesn't get? Um, I mean, he's he's mentioned many times in the Iliad, um, but obviously he gets his own story, the Odyssey. Um, but uh, Odysseus is is always told as he's he's clever, cunning, but like in in a bad way. So like the mm-hmm. Odyssey paints him. Obviously, it's like a heroic journey, but like in the Iliad, he's definitely like a scheming villain in uh in the Iliad. So that, that's that's really like what Odysseus, Odysseus is like too smart basically for all the Greeks and all the all the uh, Trojans. Interesting. Yeah. And Sean Bean does a wonderful job playing him in the movie. Yes, a he young does. Sean Bean. Yep. Sean Bean does a wonderful job playing everybody. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh no, that's a good one. Um uh Macbeth, 
uh, Shakespeare's Macbeth is yes. a story that unseats this sort of idea. I mean, you are watching someone not only give into villainy, but like fucking take villainy by the reins and just drive his kingdom into the fucking ground. Um, that's true. So the, you know, that's Macbeth. There's a, this was interesting. There's a, there's a book called, it came out in the seventies called invisible cities. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm going to bring up the Wikipedia page here. Cause they have a really great definition of it. Um, it's, it's a book that contains no protagonist and no antagonist. It's, just Marco Polo talking to Kublai Khan um, about all the cities that he's encountered. And it's just like this deep description of like the inner workings of these, I think it's like 55 cities. And it's just these like deep workings of, of like how the cities, you know, some of them rise, you know, some of them already like rise and then fell. Some of them are on their way up. Some of them are like in their golden age. And it's, it's like a parable about, um, you know, about like culture and, and death and like things that are the, the nature of human experience and stuff like that. But like, there is literally no protagonist or antagonist, nothing. It's just descriptions. Interesting. Yeah. That's a very, very interesting take on how to do a book. And like, I like that. That's the Marco Polo. And it's a fictional accord, I'm assuming. Yeah. Or is yeah, it rooted a, yeah in- fictional accord. Okay. It's from, I think it's from like the sixties or seventies. Like it's an older book. Um, but it just sounded really, it just sounded really fascinating sort of teaching lessons without having someone, you know, without having someone to follow basically. Yeah, no, dude, I, I definitely understand. And like, I would have to say like, maybe just as a, as a more modern reference, like once upon a time in Hollywood isn't a traditional movie. Like I really don't even know if there is a bad guy throughout Mm -hmm. the course of the movie. And it makes a statement on these kind of like homage type films that are out there. And like, where you're really just seeing like a day-to-day life type situation, you know, like where there is a goal and an obstacle to overcome, but it's not really like an anti- an antagonistic force the way that we think about it when it comes to like uh, literature and film and yeah. everything. Yeah, I gotcha. I gotcha. Uh, one last one that I never thought about here until like I was doing research for this, Peter Pan. Oh, so take out, and, the, and this is like liter- literary Peter Pan, not um, any of the movies that have been made okay. about Peter Pan recently. Um, like I, I really, cause I've never read this before. So like, this is, this is new to me. I like, I'm literally one of those people I've, I've only seen like hook and pan and I can't, I think there's another one that involves Peter Pan too, but, um, Peter Pan is the protagonist and his refusal, he literally refuses to be an adult. Um, mm-hmm. he only associates with children so much. So there's a line in what, there's a line in the book that kind of suggests that maybe he kills kids once they get to really, old. yeah. Wow, that's really dark. Yeah. <laughs> no shit. I so, never even knew that because so, every time you see it, it's always a joyous, uplifting exactly. thing. He's the hero. Exactly. Um, so there's that. Uh, it's it's a really interesting reading on it. And, you know, it's someone who's basically refusing to adapt and grow and do anything mature. And then he possibly kills kids as well. Well, well Disney is known for, um, you know, doing stuff like that involves a little bit of controversy. Yeah, so. it's very true. It's very true. <laughs> Um, so how about the hero villain dichotomy itself? What do, what do you think that is like representative of? I mean, it's not just, we're not just in terms of like, in terms of like a Marvel movie, it's a little bit more, it's just like we need two opposing forces so we mm-hmm. can like sell tickets. But clearly when storytelling began, the hero villain dichotomy was something more personal. So what does it represent to you? Okay. I think it represents like a couple of different levels uh, for me. Um, it does represent a larger kind of picture where it is almost like a 
me versus like the world type thing. And what I see in movies on TV and read in books is a representation of this me versus the world in some way, shape or form. Mm. It, it works a little bit better with, um, when the, the situation is more relatable, like granted, I'm never going to be in Wakanda and battle for the throne. But, um, I do think that it's something about obstacles and how like we mm-hmm. have overcome, have obstacles to overcome within the world that we need to do to succeed and to like feel safe and to, you know, have all the, like our own, like kind of like sense of accomplishment, I guess. And then the other level is that it represents like something like on an internal level and like, I was even thinking about how this may sound stupid, but like when you're driving in a car and like somebody cuts you off, I'll be the first to admit, like there are sometimes depending on the, uh, depending on how serious the situation is, I do get a little bit heated in everything. And I almost feel that like if I cave in and just started like yelling the F word over and over again, it's almost like this good versus evil battle within myself, a very, very small one. It's mm-hmm, a very, very mm-hmm. small scale type thing. Mm-hmm. But um, if I maybe shout one F-bomb and call it a quit, it's just like the villain punching me in the face and then I win. You know, uh, They got one over on me. But there are times where I notice that if I be the better person, take a breather and calm down. I'm not being the better person. I don't know what the hell I said that. But uh, if I take a breather and calm down it almost feels like I conquered this small little good versus evil encounter. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. No, I got you a hundred percent. I think, um, I, yeah, I kind of view it like as, as having two layers as well. And like the, like the more personal layer of it is sort of a, I, I guess it's like a, almost a test. Um, like you could look at the hero villain dichotomy almost as a test. Like, will you sort of rise to a challenge to, you know, to be, you know, more noble or to do, you know, quote unquote, do the right thing. Or will you give in to temptation? Will you, mm-hmm. will you take, will you backslide or take the easy path or do something that is underhanded? And I think when you, when you expand and like put that out more, you know, on like a, an entire culture or society, it's, it's similar, but it's, it's similar in that it's like this dichotomy is sort of to teach you lessons that, we want, you know, we want, the reason why we tell these stories this way is that, like, we think this is a good thing for many people to think about and to achieve. And we're going to present a villain that is all the things that we don't want to be. You know, this is mm-hmm. our, this is something that you shouldn't be like, because this is what's going to happen to you. So I, th- mm-hmm. so I think, I think in the personal level, it really is about, like, those small choices, those everyday choices that might lead to other things. But, like, at, at like, a cultural level or a society level, it, it really is sort of explaining to everyone, like, these are the good qualities, these are the bad qualities. I completely understand what you're saying, definitely. Yeah. Um, so, do you find heroes or villains more appealing? Dude, it's always the bad guys. Yes, it is, it's always the bad guys. I would have been shocked if you said heroes, honestly. Yeah. I, dude, me too. I'm not going to lie. Like, that would have been, like, you could have just cut me off and kicked me off the podcast right then <laughs> and there. <laughs> but, um, okay, so... The reason that I find this um, is a couple different reasons. Um, on top of just the general statement that the villains are always more badass, um, I, you know, I could put it simply like that. Oh, yeah. But I'll get a little bit more specific in the sense that um, when it comes to the heroes, I kind of think we've pumped this well pretty dry. And while you are always going to be able to create newer and 
more compelling characters. When it comes to heroism, it's all different versions of the same thing. And villains, especially in today's television revolution, like kind of what we're seeing in film where like the bad guys are become more, more of a central focus of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel that the villain well is much more ripe for really, really good storytelling. And even though, um, okay. Okay. So yeah, there is more to explore in this mythos because the mythos of the villain, I was reading, following down like what I had written here. Um, okay. So, um, there's this, this well is ripe for exploration and what I think is the most interesting element about the villain over the hero is finding out why the villain became bad. Because mm-hmm. I pers- I personally believe that everybody starts off good. Like we're all like inherently good and certain elements in your life shape you to become who you are. And there are some people that make it, the world thrown at them and are strong and resilient and come out on top. And there may be some that are weaker and put their aggressions towards things that they maybe not, they shouldn't. And finding out why that person has decided to direct their anger against, you know, an innocent people or a city with a giant ray gun, I feel is a little bit more compelling in the storytelling sense than just the guy who maybe wants to do good or he's always done good. Mm -hmm. So he's going to continue to do good. I feel that there's much more that we can get out of that. Well, yeah, a hundred percent that there's, I I, I put here that like, there's just so many more layers to a villain that you, you're, you're a hundred percent right. Like with exceptions, none of these characters in any kind of story are usually born evil or born villainous. Um, there's are, there are, there are exceptions to that, which actually we'll talk about, um, a little bit later, but there's so many more layers to it. Like what's, what is the, what's the cause Like, what happened? How have they, how have they made this like full time transition to being a villain from maybe not, not even necessarily a good person, but just a neutral character to what they, what they've become. Um, and, and I, and this is like, as someone who writes as well, they are so much more fucking fun to write because mm-hmm. they can, they can break all sorts of rules. Um, they don't need, uh, they don't need any kind of codes or anything. You can, you can push them into any kind of affiliation that you want to. Villains can become good guys. Villains can then go back to being villains. Good guys really can't do that. Good guys can't, can't suddenly switch sides. Mm -hmm. Um, they, it just, it doesn't like, it doesn't usually make sense in in the course of a story. And usually the motivations for a villain are just, just like exponentially more interesting than the motivations for a hero. Yeah, exactly. You're right. So, since we're since we're kind of mentioning this here, why don't we make the villains the focus of our entertainment more frequently? Like, I, I think you and I just real quickly before we get into it, you and I talked about when we did our um, our Avengers: Infinity War review that I, I I think this movie would have been fucking fantastic if it followed Thanos the entire time, like mm-hmm. he was the main character, and like as he jumped from place to place, he encountered the Avengers. Yes, exactly. And I almost feel that if that wasn't a Disney movie, that's what the movie would have been. Yeah, for sure. But there had to be some kind of 
the good guys getting something, you know, some small victory mm-hmm. like along mm-hmm. the way. Like, but I'm telling you, dude, if that was a Warner Brothers movie, that would have been Thanos on an outright dominating John Wick type thing, but with the Avengers, I one hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. So why so why don't you think we do we do stuff like that more frequently? I know I know it's become I know it has actually popped up more and more, especially in TV. But why don't why don't we do this more often? Okay, so I'm going to get technical here. And technically, what in what we're seeing right now, and like you know, just in movies and in television, no matter what, they're really. It's never the villain is never really like a villain. You know, he's always like an anti-hero. There's some mm-hmm. hero element to it. So the only way that you're really able to sell these shows, where like it's you know a dark, seedy underworld, and there's all these shitty people, is that. Everybody else around them has to be way, way shittier. <laughs> exactly. Yep. So no matter what, on a technical level, like if we're talking like, you know, defining the words here, I feel that it's kind of impossible to make a story about a villain. Like even like in Joker, for example, Joker, yeah, it's about the Joker, but everybody else around him is bad. And even though like he ends up becoming like a bad guy, you're still he's still like the hero because he overcame all these other shitty people. So there's, it's never really a villain. The guy becomes the hero no matter what. Yeah. Yeah. It's exactly. There's, um, there's an example we're going to get to later, um, about that, like you, that you kind of hit on dead on that, like in something like the Joker, it's everyone else is just shitty too. So like he's less shitty or maybe just a different kind of shitty. Um, possibly, I don't, I don't know exactly how you want to coach it, but like, or word it, but, um, yeah, like it, it's, it also would be, it would be a little bit strange the way, the way TV works, especially if a bad guy just kept winning mm-hmm. and, and winning and winning and winning, it would be very strange to sort of watch, you know, like, especially if like their, their intent is truly evil. Like, it, you know, like the bad right. guy's trying to, I don't know, like assassinate the president. And that's like how the show ended. That would be a really strange fucking show. <laughs> And then, yeah. but the only way you could make that work is if it turned out like, by the way, like, um, you know, like the, the villain was actually like, I don't know, some like time traveler who had to come back, kill the, kill that particular president because he's going to unleash something far worse in the future. Yeah. Like he, that's the stepping stone. Um, it, it would have to be something like that because it would be really strange just to watch a bad guy win. Right. Yeah. And like, even even these bittersweet endings, there's always the sweet part about it. Mm-hmm. So when somebody loses something, they always gain something too. So I guess it just goes back to this like whole like kind of catharsis argument that we've seen like in stories and in writing where it's just all about like harmony and everything. And since we have been instilled in us forever that evil triumphing over good is disrupting homeostasis – it is just going to naturally leave this unsettling feeling with us and everything. Now, I'm assuming that a, a lot of us are good at heart and there might be some sicko out there who's just waiting for the penguin to gas everybody and blow up Gotham with little penguin missiles, but that's not the general populace. Mm-hmm. And and you know what? And, and and if you're as a writer, Chema, where do you go if your villain's successful? Like as a writer, like honestly, you really can't go anywhere because the only hope that you would have would be that you could write a sequel right where the 
where eventually the good guy just wins. Right. Where the good guy comes back to, to take it over. So, um, yeah, it's I don't know. Like I feel that um, there's actually more directions to go into when the good guy just triumphs over evil because then he could always triumph over a greater evil. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with you there. Um, so any examples, though, of this where, we're, where we are definitely following the villain around um, in, in be it movie, book, TV, anything? Okay, so I, I did talk about Joker. That's mm-hmm. like, as far as like a, the last couple of years, I think that that is going to be like the definitive example of like what an anti-hero movie will be, especially one that does tackle the issue of mental health in the way that it does in mm-hmm. classes, all this kind of stuff. It's a surprisingly a statement film for being a DC movie. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. <laughs> they really oh, yeah, knocked it sure. out of the park on that one. Um, one thing that I will say, and this is just a little bit left of center, but don't try to go with me on this oh, one sure. is um, it's always sunny in Philadelphia. Now it's always sunny in Philadelphia. The core cast, realistically, these people are horrible, awful yes. pieces of shit. Yep. Okay. They would be the bad guy, the dickhead dude at the bar, the bully in high school in any other television show in the world. But because the world around them involves a crackhead guy named cricket who rolls guys for, for money and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, um, a money character named Frank, who is just up for anything and who's a complete enabler, uh, a series of horrible, even somehow more horrible friends. Um, and they even had these people that they constantly shit on like the waitress, Mm -hmm. but the waitress is painted in such a scummy light that you kind of almost want them to do it. So (laughs) it's this brilliant, brilliant, set of rule establishment and following these rules that really make that show work. And as far as something that is focused on something that is not necessarily a perfectly clean cut group of individuals, I think it's always sunny in Philadelphia definitely makes a statement as far as like being able to take the villain archetypes or the, or the not hero archetypes and making them work for a very, very long period of time. I, I, I'm a hundred percent in agreement with you. And I think it's also, it works because they, they're never successful. Nothing mm-hmm. that they do ever works. Um, if anything, it just drives them. Like, if anything, they're the ones getting punished at the end of an episode. Like they're not prospering yeah. from the things that they do. So I think you can keep going with that because of that. Exactly. I love how, about, how about you? How about uh, you? What are you? Some, I got a handful here. Have? I got a handful here. I'm going to start off with one that, uh, one that's like old, an old school one that like you probably forgot about, but I'm sure that you had to watch in high school, um, Amadeus. Oh God, Salieri! Salieri! Oh my God! F. Murray yeah. Abraham, fucking! I think, gosh, I feel like he was nominated for Academy Award for that. Um, he was actually, but and like, I can't watching, remember if he won. He did not win, but I, I'm pretty sure he was nominated. That watching him, watching him as Salieri, just from slowly destroyed Mozart's life. And and push him off the edge and make him drink. What is Mozart died when he's like thirty one, thirty two, really young. Yeah, yeah uh, drank himself to death and like watching watching you basically watching the un, the unraveling of Mozart by a jealous person by this jealous rival. It's just fucking. It's it's almost you almost feel guilty. Like you need a bath mm-hmm. at the end of the fucking movie because like you're you're enjoying the performance and everything so much. Um, right. So that's that's like the first one that pops to mind. Uh, another one that pops to mind here: American Psycho. Yes. Um, following Patrick Bateman around as he just, you know, it's it's not even just Patrick Bateman. Everyone's just a piece of shit 
you know, kind of as, mm-hmm. as you mentioned before, everyone is some sort of piece of shit. But Patrick Bateman happens to be possibly, potentially, um, also a serial killer. Um, and we just sort of watch him as he interacts, you know, from day to day, um, how he copes with this completely, uh, completely superficial life and how he interacts with everyone around him. Um, it's, it's pretty amazing. And just real quickly here, I want to get your thoughts on this one. Um, Leonard Shelby from Memento. Uh, that is Pantoliano's character, right? No, it's, it's Guy, it's Guy Pierce. Oh, Guy, Guy Pierce. Sorry about that. And I bring it up because as the story progresses, and if anyone's unfamiliar with Memento, sorry for a few Memento spoilers. I haven't, I haven't seen it in a while though, but, um, he begins purposely filling himself with false memories, like on his, right. on his tattoos. He begins purposely filling himself with false information, um, that leads to other people's deaths. That's right. So it's weird because it's like he is the hero and, and the, the bad villain. guy all, yeah. all at the same time. That's right. And Memento is like Memento is told in such a unique way that it you kind of ignore like some of the things that they're being, but and they also do give him like Joe Pantoliano is this guy that yeah. you you think is the villain. That's a bit wow, dude. I'm not gonna lie. Like now that I think about it, there are so many different like ways and then reversals and everything. And literally by the time you're at the end of the movie, you're watching a completely different thing than it was when you saw it in the beginning. So that's a really, really good example of how you could transition from role to role or even leave some ambiguity and leave it up for the audience to decide. And and there is, and that's, isn't that like a Christopher Nolan staple leaving the questions unanswered? Um, oh yeah, um, but also like it, it's also because of the nature because we are seeing this movie from Leonard Shelby's viewpoint. Um, the whole movie is from his point of view. He's also the most unreliable narrator of all time. So is he even a good guy? Is he even a villain? I don't. I I think he occupies both roles almost almost simultaneously throughout the movie. Yeah, that's that's a good point, and they even show you through the use of color footage and black and white footage and stuff going forwards and backwards. They even kind of show you at different times how he is both. Yeah, absolutely. So I, yeah, I, I wanted your thoughts on that one. I thought it was kind of a, I threw it up there because I, I don't think you would, I don't think you would qualify that character as a hero, but I'm not sure if he's quite a villain necessarily either. No, that's a really good example. Okay. Um, so what not enter- non entertainment realms, excuse me, non entertainment realms, produce the best hero and villain pairings war yeah. definitely war yeah <laughs> that is number one at the list yeah you bet it is uh an us versus them or your country versus whatever other country you will never ever find a more good versus evil dynamic than what the government is selling you during wartime yep the <laughs> the propaganda um i i it, it's one of these i don't want to say it's like something one of my favorite things to do but it's really fascinating getting into like World War II propaganda from all of the countries. Mm-hmm. Um, just the way that they paint, the way that they paint their you know our, their various nemesis. So if you're looking at like British propaganda, uh, you mm-hmm. know against the Germans or whatever, if you look at a French prop, like it's, it's very specific. It's very meant you know it's meant to you know elicit a particular feelings. The Japanese propaganda about American soldiers that we're all like basically mutants coming to mm-hmm. eat their children. Yeah, um, it's it, dude. It's it's a fascinating it's a fascinating trip into. Um, I, I guess the, I guess the propaganda would be psychological warfare. It's a really yeah. fascinating trip into psychological warfare. Oh, dude, totally. And I don't know if you've seen the final season of The Man in the High Castle. I have, um, yep. but 
Okay, you have. There's this part in the first couple episodes where the Germans are trying to, I guess, gain favor with the African-American population here in the States. And there's some guy, like, crafting a message specifically, like, to the African-Americans, like, trying to get them on the side of the Reich. And it just shows you, like, how specific these, like, these kind of propaganda campaigns would go. Like, Wait, are already, you, are you uh, real quick, are you conflating that with um, Watchmen? Sorry, it's Watchmen. Yes. I'm sorry. Yeah. Damn it. I, yeah, okay, it's Watchmen. Sorry, it's Watchmen. It's all right, no big deal. I was, yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. It's something that I watch because I watched the two of them simultaneously okay. and it got, it got, cause I knew that there was something about African American soldiers and stuff. It's Watchmen. Yeah. Sorry about that. Yeah. Yep. It was, yeah, it was from, uh, it was from world war one. And I believe that, I believe that that's a real letter that, um, that, that was, that was, uh, distributed to, uh, you know, that the Germans tried to get to, uh, some of the African American re- regiments. Oh, I guarantee that that's a real mm-hmm. letter. David Lindelof doesn't fuck around. Yeah. Yeah, no, but yeah, that's a dude. Great, no, very good example though. Very good example. If and if anyone's lost here in Watchmen, uh, one of the one of the main characters, uh, you know, was a World War One soldier. Actually, not one of the main characters, but one of the main characters' fathers, I guess. World War One soldier. And uh, there's this. Uh, this is this is obviously before Germany decided to go on their whole uh, at the cleansing uh, purge. You know, just thirty years later, um, they drop these leaflets on the African American regiments about like. You know, is your basically asking the African American regiments to just quit, go away, mm-hmm. um, because are things really are things good for you in America? Question mark. And the answer is no, they are not. So why are right. you fighting for them? Right. And I'm not going to lie. As far as the propaganda machine goes, that is a pretty fucking brilliant move. I'm mm-hmm. not going to lie. That mm-hmm. is a pretty good one. No, absolutely. And and similarly here, I'm going to kind of come up uh, come up with like the with you know a, a similar one here, but politics. Um, you know, especially when we have these big presidential elections that it's both sides trying to paint the other as the villain, um, and spending Mm -hmm. billions and billions and billions of dollars to do it. It's outrageous how how much money we spend on casting Hillary Clinton or casting Donald Trump as the villain. Yeah. And I'm telling you, the show has only just begun. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, Bloomberg joining into this thing. Oh, God. Talk about the money. Oh, God, we are going to see ungodly amounts of money being spent on this thing. Yep, and I have this terrible fear we're just going to end up uh, right back where we started. I have that fear as well, dude, but we'll yep. save that for another day. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right, so what notable hero and notable villain would you like to be Would you like to be for a day? And, and obviously, okay. obviously, why? Okay. I As far as the hero goes... I would love to be Superman. Mm-hmm. Um, on the obvious reasons are flight and super strength and everything. All the the powers, obviously, I would definitely love to get a taste of that. But I would also like to know what it's like to be the symbol of all that is right for twenty four mm-hmm. hours, because I have spent thirty five years being a symbol of all that is wrong. <laughs> so um, I definitely would like to just know what it's like to know what it's honestly like to carry the weight of the world on your shoulders to have millions and millions of people relying on you to be their safety net, to be their protector, their defender. Like I would love to know what that's like, but only for 24 hours because I probably wouldn't be able to take it. I I, I understand. I I often wonder if I often wonder like why we don't get a few more psychological examination type stories, you know, comics or, or movies or, or anything about mm-hmm. like the the mental toll of being a hero, 
Yeah. Like it's I, I know we've kind of touched on it a little bit um most recently with like the boys kind of touched on some of this. Um, yeah. when you th- when you think about like the the, the drug addiction that that A Train's going through. Or mm-hmm. like the the rude the rude uh, awakening that um, I forgot Aaron Moriarty's Starlighter Starlight mm-hmm. that yeah. she gets upon joining the Seven like that would be a really interesting sort of story to tell like by the way being <laughs> being all powerful kind of sucks sometimes okay I'm gonna is it okay if I take that idea because that's really fucking good go for it man I, I appreciate that thank you so much and I completely agree with you and. What they're doing in movies now is they're cheaping in it by making that hero just like drink or something or he's got some stupid little thing that he does. Maybe he goes to the beach and uses his powers and screams and creates a tidal wave, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But um, I definitely agree that something like that is ripe for – for, for creating a story. Mm -hmm. And 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 I'm going to do it. If it becomes something, dude, just a little EP credit. Yes, I – I no, believe me, dude. I will do that and more. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, how about a villain? Okay, villain, villain wise, I am going for Azumandias from Watchmen. Um, I like this villain because of the the intelligence factor. And when they were originally crafting the character, Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons, they were trying to borrow from really old timey superheroes. We're talking like in the, the forties yeah. and thirties and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, it, it was, it's, he's a very, um, I, I know I've read this before, like flash Gordon type, uh, heroes were like the inspiration. Yeah, exactly. And one of the bad guys that they opted for, or not, not even a bad guy, but like this, um, like almost like a, like a comic figure. I believe he's a hero is this guy called the Adam, and the Atom is somebody that has an overabundance of stuff, but the one thing that he's able to do is use 100% of his brain because they say that you know human beings only use like 10% of their brain. Right, yeah. And so Osmondias, um, because he's able to use 100% of his brain, that's where all the crazy cool reflexes and stuff like that come in. And the scene of him catching the bullet in the comics is just like such this badass scene. And they, they, I liked it in the movie, and I really, really liked it with Jeremy Irons catching the bullet at the end of the, um, at the mm-hmm. end of the TV show. Mm-hmm. And there is something also too about number one owning a badass like prehistoric cat as your pet. Like my cat now is like probably like one foot in total like coverage area she's a small little cat that thing is a fucking tiger and i would love to have that on a leash in my deluxe chiller bachelor pad in antarctica but jess would obviously be there because you know i love her and everything <laughs> right oh that's good no i like it i like it a lot actually uh yeah ozymandias is a really interesting character period um uh yeah I'm gonna, i'll start with villain here for you um mine's mine's a bit more broad and actually kind of kind of similar to why you'd want to be superman I would okay. want to be Satan for a day. Oh, okay. Sort of the inverse. Like, what is it like to be sort of the universal boogeyman for so many people that mm-hmm. I am like I am like the the final destination for all of you ne'er do wells and and just terrible people. Like, you're yes. going to come visit me. So, like, what's the, what's the inverse of that of being Superman? Like, what's the you know what's it like to be this terrible terrible nightmarish thing of a person? Plus. Kind of as time has gone on, Satan has, uh, you know, become, you know, personified in different ways. Like in the show Lucifer, he's like this English dandy Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, looks like he's having a lot of fun doing stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. So that might be something fun, like to sort of had no moral code, basically, 
for a day right. would be kind of fun to sort of, you know, all day long, maybe perhaps tempt people into doing things would be right. a lot of fun, would be kind of interesting. But yeah, it just sort of like really sort of generally sort of like to experience being something that I don't, I, I mean, I don't, do people hate Satan or are they just afraid of him? You know what I mean? Like I, I just yeah. to experience that sort of thing would be kind of interesting. Oh, dude, I completely understand. Like, and I actually think that people are more afraid of him. And the way South Park make, makes him look, Satan's like an actually like a lovable kind of guy. Right, right. <laughs> and like, I'm, dude, like, I think that as far as a villain goes, it would be incredibly intriguing to know what it's like to be the one who holds millions of souls and everything, which some people may believe to be more value than their own lives. Yeah, very true. Very true. Um, my hero, though, I'd like to be for a day is kind of. It's a little off the wall here, but but uh, it, it, this this is like it follows with a lot of my own interests. I would love to be Doctor Daniel Jackson from Stargate. Oh, as a person who's interested in Egyptology and history, sort of to have the opportunity, and obviously like nerdy shit like space travel, to have the opportunity to have one character that can experience all of that in a day, to travel across the galaxy to uh, you know to to ancient cities that were built by the people that built the pyramids in, in Egypt. And like experience firsthand, like experience firsthand, like a living ancient culture would be fucking amazing. Um, I guess suppose I could pick a time traveling hero too, but um, mm. you know, traveling through the Stargate too seems like it just would be a really cool thing to do. So, uh, so give me, give me, uh, give me Daniel Jackson, man. Originally, originally played by James Spader, and then later played by Michael Shanks in the TV series. Yeah, I really like that, and I love the uh, Stargate. The fucking that reference came out of nowhere, dude. And I got to <laughs> tell you. That's a fucking classic, man. Like that is like one of those like classic examples of sci-fi. Like Kurt Russell's in the original, right? Yep, Kurt Russell, James Spader, and uh, who's like the other? There's one more notable person. Well, Jay Davidson's the villain, but um, uh, he was the Jay Davidson didn't act much after this movie. He was the in the Crying Game. He was like the transvestite. Okay. Um, okay. You know, you have to look it up, but. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely, I will for sure. And I'm telling you, like, that movie just comes during this, like, I don't know, just this crop of, like, 90s sci-fi, like, species and all that that I'm just going to take with me for the rest of my life, you know? It's, it's, those movies mean something to me. Yeah, I, I saw it recently. A lot of parts don't hold up, but a lot of it does still hold up. It's still pretty fun. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Um, so let's move into it. Um, I think we're going we're gonna to talk about the, the archetypes of these antagonists. And I, I think it's important to note that, like, we're using the terms hero and villain just as shorthand because they're easier. But as we get through this list, you're going to see that, like, antagonist is a much better word, a much better definition for what we're talking about. Because some of these, some of these antagonists aren't necessarily villains or mm-hmm. evil or even bad, necessarily. It's just, it's just, uh, well, well, we'll get into it, but... Just for everyone out there, you know, just as for shorthand, hero and villain is, def- is probably more than likely what we're going to be going with. You know, you know what I mean? Yes, of course, dude, okay. definitely. So I have a little table here. I'm just going to read through. I'm going to read through them real quickly, and then we're going to go through and kind of break them down more. Um, so as we talk about types of antagonists, there are there are some obvious ones that people grew up knowing. Um, like there's some ones that people grew up knowing. And there's some ones that we added here that I think uh, cover a lot of a lot of areas uh, of storytelling that have kind of cropped up over the years. So we're going to start off here. We're going to talk about uh, force of nature or creatures. We're going to talk about minions. We're going to talk about human mistakes or human errors. Talk about henchmen. We're going to talk about something I'd like to call the body politic. We're going to talk about the mustache twirler. That's a classic one that you've probably heard before. 
We're going to talk about the mastermind, again, a, an archetype that everyone's heard of before. We're going to talk about the mirror, which is a newer type of, of, uh, of villain or antagonist. And we're going to talk about the other hero, uh, which is actually, I wouldn't say it's very new, but like its use in TV shows and movies is, is definitely newer. Um, mm-hmm. de- or definitely more of a, a more recent phenomenon. But uh, they definitely exist throughout literature. So let's go back, rewind it back, uh, talk about uh, force of nature and creatures. Um, this is, just to throw out like a, a looser def- or more encompassing definition here, it could be anything from like an event, um, like a, a tidal wave or a volcanic eruption. It could also be something like a predatory animal or like a supernatural creature that's like out in the woods hunting people down. So... Chema, for me, starting off here with our force of nature or creatures, um, just get, throw out an example and like kind of give me a, a deeper meaning of what what it means, you know, either in like that story or movie or what it means in general. Okay, so I went with Gorgo. It's basically the British Godzilla, and mm-hmm. the, the movie is called Gorgo. And uh, as far as like he's created by a volcanic eruption in the ocean, and um, it's actually his mother named. Agra, O-G-R-A, she ends up becoming like the main villain because Gorgo is captured by humans. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that the movie is definitely making one of these like don't fuck with nature, don't kind yeah. of capture animals statements and yeah. everything. And the images that you see of like the giant creature attacking Big Ben and Big Ben falling to the ground and everything, it's kind of like this cool little piece of um, you know monster movie British budget monster movie history, I right, guess. Right. And, um, yeah, like, so I, that, that's what I'm, that's what I decided to go with. I went with like a little more lower key cause everybody was expecting me to say Godzilla answer. <laughs> right. No, no, it, it's good. And that's, that's exactly. And that's, that was the point of Godzilla was that, mm-hmm. like, Hey, don't set off nuclear weapons on us because like weird shit, weird shit's going to happen after that. Um, and you know, it's that Godzilla is part of the, uh, the atomic scare. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Gorgo's from sixty, from early sixties, right? Correct. Because I, I, I feel like I've seen this movie before, um, probably, possibly even recently. Um, that like it, it's we're still that's still very much in the atomic scare timeline. Um, and you know, at the it really nineteen sixty one, you're talking like the height of the Cold War. So mm-hmm. it's yeah, it's definitely like a humans yeah. not messing with nature. Um, you know, like it, it's it's emblematic of of an, uh, it's emblematic of a nuclear weapon, right? It's a monster that can can destroy an entire city like at will. Yes, and it was 1961, early 61, 60s you yeah. bet. So, yes, yeah, so you're you're talking the height of uh the height of the of the Cold War, still still with the atomic uh, scare. Uh it did Cuban Missile Crisis right that year or was it next year? Uh, ooh, Cuban Missile Crisis was I believe the next year. Okay. I thought that was, I thought that led up into the assassination. 1962, uh, you bet yeah, it was. Okay. Yeah, so like we're the 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 parallels and allegories are right there for you to to go ahead and pick from, but there's a lot of them. I like it though. Yeah, how about you? Uh, I went with uh, I went with Toonbach, uh from the Terror. Uh, oh, mostly, good. Mostly from the book, but like in terms of the TV show too. Um, Toonbach is this uh, I guess this sort of physical divinity or physical god um, that uh, patrols the I can't remember the name of the of the Indian tribes that are in far northern Canada, but it, it's ba- he basically has become... In the book, you get much more background on Toonbach. Like, he mm-hmm. was a god that gets expelled to Earth and has to, like, take this, like, shape of a polar bear, okay. basically. But he has an arrangement with the native people 
you know, you, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll fend for you. You fend for me basically. And Mm -hmm. the fending for him is like, keep people the fuck out of here. That like, this is, you know, people, certain people don't belong up here. And along come the British trying to find the, um, trying to find the, the Northwest passage. Uh, they eventually get marooned and, um, because they are where they're not, where they don't belong, um, they end up screwing around with, uh, they end up like killing people from the native cultures, you know, from the native tribes, um, that kind of like unleashes like tune box fury all over them. And mm-hmm. it really is like a very straightforward, it's a great TV show's great. Um, I actually started reading the book. It's pretty great. Um, but it's a pretty straightforward message that like humans a lot of times go places where they just don't belong. And mm-hmm. when you begin messing with that, you begin messing with nature and you begin messing with certain cultures, you're, you're upsetting the natural balance. And that at some point in time, that's going to come back to bite you in the ass or exactly chew your legs off in one case. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree with you, dude. Like there is something about this balance in the world. And while it is one of these things that, um, you, it's hard to document exactly what you're talking about, but it is something that is definitely felt, or if you don't feel it, you should definitely feel a balance in nature. And whenever we go places that we shouldn't, it's kind of on us at that point in time. Yeah. Like it's, it's not the animal's fault. Yeah, exa- exactly. And that's, and it really like, there's, there's, there's some other examples of this just real quickly. I'll, I'll throw a few more out. Um, uh, oh fuck dude. You, I mean, it's, it's very, it's very blunt in this movie, but like an avatar, um, mm-hmm. We're going to destroy like this very like harmonious, peaceful. I think it's actually a moon. Um, we're going to dest- basically destroy this very like harmonious, peaceful moon, and it fights back and kills all of us. Yeah, exactly. For a metal called unobtainium, unobtainium. I believe is what it's called. Yeah, yeah, yeah a little a little writing, uh, uh, a little like writing technique there. That uh, there's unobtainium in that movie, The Core. Oh, okay. Where they, where they drill down, and there's unobtainium in yeah. another movie too. Okay. Interesting. They can't see that gets me, man. Like you guys can't even think of like for all the original stuff that Cameron like had to invent and test and all right. this stuff to Un- make that movie. That's what they came up with. Like, yeah, I know. I know. It's ridiculous. <laughs> um, any other kind of key feature that you could think about, like, or anything else that stands out about like the, the forces of nature or creatures. Okay. The, um, there are times where they're often not defeated. They're just kind of suppressed or yep. they go return to nature, you know, like yep. basically nature runs its course, I guess, so yeah. to speak. And um, like in the first Godzilla movie um, of the new ones, like the one that came out in 08 by mm-hmm. uh, Gareth Edwards. No, not, not 2008, 2014 yeah. from Gareth Edwards. Um, the movie does place a pretty strong emphasis on the the mutos uh with the i can't remember what that stands for off the top of my head but um basically the giant monsters mm-hmm. um a lot of emphasis is placed on them just exi- just existing along with us like that this is what they do they get up and they fight every now and then and they go back to it and it is just a part of nature and everything uh so i do believe that um there's some kind of statement to be said about how you can it's like, it's almost like a warning. Like these monsters are coming to warn the humans and then they go back hoping that the humans will like stop doing whatever they're doing. Yep. Exactly. That's, that's exactly kind of what I I said. Like that's, it's also there like these sort of antagonists are sort of responses that usually it's, they're not the ones, they're not the ones posing the, the original threat. It's usually humans posing the original threat and it's a response. 
Yes, exa- exactly. Yeah, it's a um, massive unidentified terrestrial organism is Muto. Yep, That's right. There you go. Yeah. All right. Moving on here to minions. Um, I think this is. I, I, I can't remember if I, I. This isn't like an original category per se, but I think the way I, I kind of um, set about defining it was a little bit more original. Um, mm-hmm. So minions, not the, the tiny fucking yellow blobs that are all over my goddamn Facebook page. Um, right. Because everyone loves posting minions memes for some goddamn reason. Um, but a minion is something that is summoned and controlled by another force or person. Like, it, where there's another, I already mentioned henchmen, that's different. And you'll it see is. why it's different. Um, yep. So, Chema, give me, uh, go ahead and, and throw me out like an example of a minion uh, in, okay. in, in any kind of medium. The hyenas from The Lion King. They're basically under Scar's direction. Yep. There's a multitude of them. During the be prepared, like, you know, his big singing scene where they showed the hyenas lined up like Nazi soldiers, basically. Yep. That is definitely, I mean, this isn't anything new or original, guys. You could read a thousand articles about this, but that is definitely reflectant of the minions of Adolf Hitler and everything. These people that just follow Scar, whatever he says. Yep. He snaps his fingers, they're there. Exactly. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, Ed, do you think that these are, that the, like, these, these character types are emblematic of anything? Like a, like a representation of something? Yeah. Or? Yeah. Okay. I. I got to say that, like, I mean, obviously not bringing up the Nazi thing again. I think it is something about, like, the population getting behind a really, really stupid idea. Like, that's what they're trying mm. to capture, but on, like, a, but on, like, a scale of, like, a bunch of hyenas and stuff like that. Yeah, that sure, sure. We're so easily duped sometimes like me and the whole like you know two million miles away from earth is really close that an asteroid's going to hit us type thing <laughs> so um i i think that that's like kind of like what they're going for is that like you know some people are just so easily um mixed up and uh susceptible to like follow like an ideal that may just be complete bs or like horrible. I gotcha. yeah that's actually that's actually one i didn't even think about just sort of the the gullibility of, of certain people but leads mm-hmm. them to, to, to like sort of blindly follow. Definitely. Gotcha. Gotcha. I like that. Um, I went with the, I went with the whites from game of Thrones. The, uh, Ooh, the, good. the zombies, if you will, um, they, they do have a name. They're called whites, W I G H T S. Um, that are like the, they literally are the army for the night King. Um, as he, as he makes his march, uh, South into the, into the seven kingdoms. Um, yeah, the, the whites are, the whites specifically are like, they are analogous for, um, they're analogous for, uh, global climate change, but mm-hmm. I mean, cause George Martin said so, so that that's what they are, but yeah. you can also look at them as a, as sort of like in this particular case, but also for a lot of the cases for minions that it's like a loss of humanity, that the things that make us human are kind of sapped out of them. And mm-hmm. they're not really people anymore, even though they kind of look like people. They're not people anymore. They're under someone else's control. Right. Dude, I think that that is a very, very good, very, very good example and an analogy or whatever it is. Um, I think that um, these minions and everything like that, they are completely robbed of their humanity. You're not really seeing them make decisions on their own. They don't really feel anything except for loyalty to their commander. It's, it's a really it, – they are definitely deprived of the core essentials of us as humans. Yep. Yep, exactly. And and actually, that was the, the just to piggyback off that, that was like a, a sort of a feature that I've noticed 
that generally speaking, they probably don't, usually they don't have free will. Like they're, they're not, mm-hmm. they're not doing things on their own accord. They're just sort of like, they are being controlled for one reason or another. And a lot of times they're like a hive mind. Like they just yeah. have, they have one collected thought that they're, that they're chasing. Yeah, dude, that's exactly right. And that's why you see like the whites just piling on bodies, like just, you know, soldiers climbing on top of their own dead just to get to their uh, over the wall types, uh, type stuff. Yeah, exactly. Uh, do you notice anything else there besides that? Oh, the minion supply thing. Um, yeah, actually like the way I put it, um, going back to the humanity thing, like I, the way I put it is just like, they're almost like, just like stupid. Like any intelligence that they have is just completely like robbed of Mm -hmm. them. Like whenever they're, you know, whenever they're under the influence of their commanders and stuff like that, like the hyenas and the lion King, for example, like any time that they are not, in the presence of Scar or under the direction of Scar, they're just rambling, mindless idiots yep. and stuff like that, you know, which is definitely a representation of some people on Facebook and everything, <laughs> um, especially some people you and I have talked about recently. Yep. But yeah, and that's kind of like how I view it is like there are these minions of a certain, you know, group of people and stuff like that. They, uh, you know, perpetuate their bullshit via a consequence-free environment and um that's kind of like what i see or what i think about when i uh, wrote down the hyenas for um this example i I love the hyenas too that's that's a great outside the box example too i love it um let's move on here to human mistakes human errors um this could be something like bad coding in a robot or a computer you know sending the robot or the computer program awry um it could be a medical experiment that uh, that has gotten out of control, you know, turned someone into a mutant or something like that. Um, and I included this because I think this this includes this would actually wrap in a lot of uh, like slasher type movies that someone seeking revenge for some kind of like act or an accident or something. Um, like it was, you know, we basically we caused something, so someone's kind of responding. Um, mm-hmm. So for this, so go, I, I, you know, what, I'll start this one off. Uh, I'll start off human mistakes here. Um, my, uh, like the thing that jumped to mind initially and possibly because I just recently watched the, the second, uh, in this movie series, but, uh, Skynet from Terminator. Okay. Um, originally as, as we get more information on it in the, I believe it was the third, yeah, the third movie, um, that it was like a, a department of defense project that was, was it supposed to, was it like an algorithm or something that was supposed to like cut through like enemy communications? It was some kind of advanced computer program. I can't remember the specific design of it, but whatever it was designed for, it was, turns out it was capable of so much more than that, which is what eventually took control of all the technology and stuff. It's it's basically, basically it's a giant supercomputer brain that realizes that it's, or basically realizes that it's alive. And like, Mm -hmm. I know, I know in, in Terminator 2, um, uh, Arnold lays out that like it becomes self-aware. Um, so basically that this, this artificial intelligence gains sentience and then begins executing its enemies, which are now us. But, uh, but Skynet was like the first one that jumped to mind. And then it's all of these, all of these sort of mistakes for me are like, they're about like man's hubris that like Mm -hmm. we're pushing ourselves, like we're, we're pushing the limit on certain things. And we think that we're so sure about what we're doing. And of course it ends up biting us in the ass in the case of Terminator ends up killing four, four billion people in, in one day. Yeah, that's right. And I will tell you that, uh, with Skynet, I think Skynet is a very, very definitive 
mass scale thing of like humans just pushing it too far and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Like you couldn't have a better glimpse of technology turning against us than 4 million people, 4 billion people dying on judgment day and stuff. Mm-hmm. And there is something about that, uh, first, like five minutes of Terminator two, when it's just people like enjoying their day, like on the playground. And then all of a sudden you see like, you know, like the, the, the streams of smoke from the missiles and stuff in the background and they're mm. just wiped out. I mean, there's something like that's truly piercing about that little snip of footage. Yeah, 100%. It's, we can, we can talk about the quality of every subsequent Terminator, but uh, Terminator 2, Terminator 1's a great movie. Terminator 2, for sure, is like one of the definitive apocalyptic action movies of all time. I mean, it might be the, like, the most. Oh, dude, any time that I think of, like, the dystopian thing, the Terminator always comes into my mind over anything. Mm-hmm. So how about, uh, how about you, your, uh, your human mistake? Okay, so I went with a, uh, a, a much more smaller example. Mm-hmm. Um, and this one, I, was, I don't know why I was thinking about this movie a couple weeks ago, but there's this movie called Splice that came out oh, yeah. like, yeah. when we were younger and stuff. Not when we were younger, like A.J. and Brody was popular. It was in the earlier part of the uh, 2000s I, I want to say 2012 or 13. Oh, wow. Is that, you're right. No, I was watching it at my apartment in Cleveland. That's right. Okay, that's that's when I saw it. And uh, this movie, the um, antagonist is T- this take character. That back. Two, take that back. 2009. 2009. Okay, so I gotcha. Okay, yeah, so I was watching it at my apartment in Cleveland. Gotcha. So um, Dren is this thing, human-type thing that's uh, basically made up of a bunch of splice DNA and uh, Adrian Brody and uh, his wife, whose name of which I cannot remember off the top of my head, they um, are these geneticists and they successfully create some kind of animal, like a hybrid animal, and they want to take it to the next level on a human. They're forbidden to. They do it anyway, and they end up with this baby that is accelerated uh, growth and like by in a couple months or whatever, it's already like a full grown human being. And then they find out that it's got like wings and it's got a stinger and it's a rapist. And uh, it's a really fucking creepy thing all Mm -hmm. around. And it's definitely a case of humans making a mistake that backfires on them. But yep. in a way, it doesn't because the main character does get a lot of money for having Dren's baby. So I don't know. It's I guess it's like a, one of those like things where at least something happens positive to the main character at the end. Yeah, I got gotcha, you. I got gotcha. you. So, uh, you know, I'm assuming you're going along with uh, kind of like the hubris idea. I am. Yes. Yeah. OK. OK. Uh, any other any anything else that you kind of notice about um, about like the human mistakes? OK, they um, it's definitely like a like a a statement on something else like with splice this was a a statement on like biosciences and everything Mm -hmm. like that so there is always like a hidden metaphor in there uh the all the other thing is that um it's always because somebody else tells them not to do it there's always like somebody else who has the common sense to tell these people that this is wrong that it's going to be wrong and then they, they go ahead and do it anyway so it is like um, a statement of when man tries to play God. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. hundred percent. Um, also I'll, I'll, I'll point, I've, I've never seen splice actually. It's kind of hard to believe. It feels like it'd be right up my alley. Um, but a lot of times these, uh, these characters, these types are, they're doing what they're supposed to do, but it's like slightly perverted. Um, mm-hmm. I don't mean like perverted, like, like it's skanky. I mean like perverted, like the, the idea is just been corrupted. 
in some way, shape, yeah. or form. And it's either because it's either because of like a lack of understanding, like if it's like a computer, it doesn't understand like the full range of like human intellect, like what we mean, what what we mean when we say something. You know what I mean? Like if there's the, the lack of trans the, the lack of the ability to translate completely to a computer results in Skynet mm-hmm. you know, becoming self aware and like oh kill kill our enemies. Okay, my enemies are humans. So we'll just kill all the people. How do we do that? You know what I mean? Like there's there's something lost in translation. It's it's been perverted. So like that's yes. that's so that's like a key feature that I've noticed. Yes, I definitely understand for sure, and I agree. All right, how about uh, we move on here to henchmen? Uh, this is different from minions um, because they are they're not usually under explicit control. Um, they might they they're basically they're choosing of their own free will to associate with some kind of, like, boss-level villain. Um, and a lot of times they are... It's more than they're just, like, there to provide muscle. A lot of times they are, like, a, a go-between or a direct ally. Like, they are... In, in terms of, like, a movie, they're usually a fully fleshed-out character. Mm-hmm. That's right. And I like how you put that because the henchmen, it's their choice. Like, they're choosing to do it. They're choosing to have that loyalty. It's not them being duped or anything like that. These are conscious individuals. Right. It could be, it could be something as simple as money. Right. Like the, mm-hmm. the, the bad guy, the, the, the villain is the, you know, the quote, like the, I'm going to use a bond example in mind, like the bond villain could be paying them a lot of money. So exactly. They're going to do their villainous things for money. Why not? So, uh, go ahead give me, give me yours first. And I'll give you mine. Okay. My henchman, this is a very unlikely example. And I wrote this because I have a toy of this character All right. and in, in the original Batman, the Joker has got this one guy named Bob. He's the only henchman that's identified oh, yeah, with yes, a, with a yes. name, you know? Yep. And there's something about this character that even as a kid, I absolutely love this. I kind of thought it was hysterical that the Joker's just got this guy named Bob. Bob is a short little guy with uh, shoulder-length blonde hair. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, you know, kind of has the five o'clock shadow thing going on. He only speaks in like five words or less sentences, and he does the Joker's bidding whenever he wants. And the thing that I do love about this character is that he is the only one of the Joker's henchmen in the entire movie that is not used for some form of comic relief. So like all the other guys are very loud and abrasive and they're, you know, like kind of like almost like dancing while fighting, Mm -hmm. not Bob. He just pulls out a knife and it's just like, you know, let's, let's fucking duke it out kind of thing. So as far as henchman goes, like, I don't know. I've always loved this. And for some reason I do own a action figure of Bob. Like I, I seriously own one. It's that's, that's awesome. You would own a Bob action figure. I would. Yes. (laughs) That's great though. No, that's great. Um, do you think do you think there's any sort of uh, analogy to be sought here for you know to find here with the henchman? I I do think that there's an analogy like that I guess like people do have their price or something or maybe like there are certain people out there who will do whatever for whatever I guess I don't know there's something about like um uh I don't know, like almost yeah. like a loyalty factor, but also like maybe sure. like motivated by other reasons as well. Yeah, there, okay. there, there's something there to it, and I, I think that it's um, it is noticeable. Like it is something that is we can identify. I'm just having a problem doing it because it's hard for me to distinguish the henchman from the minion in a little bit. 
better articulation other than the loyalty kind of element or the, the, the conscious choosing of their yeah. loyalty. Yeah, it's this was this was a tough one for me to sort of think about them being representative of something else or an analogy for something. Um, I think you're right. Like you can just talk about maybe maybe you could like expand that like on the loyalty thing a little bit. Like this is what following the wrong person for the wrong reason gets you. Um, I gotcha. Usually the henchman. It's, I'll tell you what. In a lot of movies, usually the henchman gets like some like notable horrible death. Um, yeah. So like maybe that's like what like following the wrong person gets you. But beyond mm-hmm. that, I really couldn't think of them being like emblematic of anything else. Yeah. No. It's it's those characters like they they're kind of there for presence and stuff. Though the henchmen never really get like a lot of of depth or anything. No. You never really. I don't know. Sometimes you don't even really find out why they're there. They're just there. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, I went with, and the, we're filling this out perfectly. Cause I went with Xenia on from golden eye as, uh, Famke Jensen, uh, is the, yeah. the, the thighs, the thighs, the thigh squeezing, killing, uh, um, assassin that, uh, comes, uh, uh, forgot, uh, Sean Bean's name, Alex, Alex Trevelyan, uh, that Alex Trevelyan hires, um, to, you know, to be the muscle for his, uh, for his enterprise. And, we really don't know much about her other than that. She's like a former Russian KB, KGB agent, um, that she squeezes men to death or squeezes everyone to death with her, with her thighs. Um, that she's like proficient at weapons. She's proficient at hand to hand fighting. Um, it's Famke Jensen. So she's really fucking hot. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. like there's not like a ton of depth other than like, Hey, I'm here to fuck you up. Basically. Like I'm going to come fuck you up. Right. Exactly. That's it. And, and, and that's all you need. That's all you need sometimes. Exactly. And, and I think that's like, and that's like the big thing with them. Generally speaking, the henchmen usually have some like distinct physical, adva- physical advantage. They're, they're physically superior. They're bigger, they're stronger. Um, or like in Xenia Anatop's case, she can like fuck people to death. Um, mm-hmm. like there's always like, they are, they are like for the, for the most part uh, out of all these examples that we have here, they're the ones that are like very purely physical beings. Yeah, exactly. That's all they're there for. They're there for the muscle or like the fact that they have martial arts skills or are really, really good with weapons or something like that. Yeah. That, that They're there for to do the things that their uh, master cannot do. Exactly. Which is often physical stuff. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, any any other things here that we want to fill in for henchmen? Uh, I got n- really nothing else on that. I like how you put it as a go between. Like, I think that that's a really good thing. And also like, just, I really think you're hitting it on the head with the not under like explicit control and right. stuff, because there are movies and there are examples, even though I'm really struggling to find one where the henchmen will kind of do things against the will of the, um, of their master just because they are so fucking sick and twisted. There'll be some kind of thing where, uh, the, the master says, bring this guy in alive. And then the henchman decides to kill him anyway, because he's a sadistic fuck. Sure. Like, stuff yeah, like that. Th- yeah. That, that kind of stuff. That, yeah. You, you, there's a, gosh, I feel like there's a, there's actually a comic book movie that kind of touches on a little bit of that, but, um, I know we're thinking of the same thing. I just can't think of what I, it is. I know I can't either, but yeah, no, exactly. Like, it, yeah, the, usually, I, I, let's just put it this way. The henchman is usually just, it's, it, it is, even though they're a little bit one dimensional, they are significantly more of a character than a minion. Like a mm-hmm. minion. I actually, I think that's what it was. Like I just separated these two because like there are some articles that kind of group these, they put these two things together under the same thing. And I really saw them as being very different. Mm-hmm. That's right. And often in the movies, the henchman is referred to as a minion by somebody. So right. it's easy to make that 
to, to blur those two together. Right. Um, how about this? How about this one? This is interesting. One that uh, this is one that I definitely sort of created for this, um, and I think this has become more of a certainly more of a staple on TV lately. Um, I call it the body politic. And like mm-hmm. the actual definition of the body politic is just like a, it's it's a it's a collective group of citizens, right? Um, yeah. It's it's it's, the, it's not necessarily it's not necessarily the governing body of like the United States. It's the citizens of the United States. I um, understand. Yeah. In in our case, we're talking about it's very similar thing. It's a society, a government, or some kind of very overwhelming, all encompassing force, or even like an idea that's the mm-hmm. ultimate villain. But yeah it will have physical agents and physical representation, but definitely, but realistically speaking, we're talking about like defeating an idea. Um, so go ahead and I, I want, I'm really interested to hear what you have for this one. Go ahead and throw out your, your body politic villain. Okay. I went with, um, the Wallace Corp in Blade Runner 2049. Very nice. It's, it's a little bit different than the Tyrell corporation. Like the Tyrell corporation in the first one was definitely an evil company, but it wasn't like they were – I don't know. I don't feel that the Tyrell Corporation was like made out to look like an evil company. I think the audience kind of associates the evilness of the replicants yeah. with, the Tyrell Cor- with the Tyrell Corporation, mm-hmm. whereas the Wallace Company, this is 100 percent like an evil empire, body politic that type thing. Mm-hmm. And they're the corporation that saves humanity from the blackout. So you already have – them being this kind of savior type figure to a large amount of the population. And then also I noticed that the Wallace corporation, their replicants worked to benefit the, the Wallace corporation. They worked for the company. Whereas in the original Blade Runner, those replicants were out for themselves. Mm -hmm. And the way Neander Wallace is, is kind of like this mythical blind godlike figure I think really embodies the definition of the body politic for our discussion. Yeah, no, I, I, I think this is a really good example, actually. Um, there, I actually thought about using a company a company as well, a corporation as well. Um, I'm glad you did here. It's, I think, again, I think this is more of a, I don't want to say recent phenomenon, um, because the one I'm going to use is actually from an older book, but um, I think the way that, I think that like writers are finding this to be really fertile ground for, you know, for, especially for TV shows, you can really stretch the idea of like a company or government being oppressive for a lot of, you can, you can stretch that up for a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And in, I, I kind of, I kind of forgot about the blackout stuff in 2049 already. Um, like they make it clear that the, like the Wallace Corp is like sort of the end all be all that they are in charge of everything, at least as far as what we see in Los Angeles. They're in charge mm-hmm. of everything, basically, that, that, yeah. we're, that we're looking at. Yeah, no, definitely, dude. And I, I think that that is a way better definition of the body politic than the Tyrell Company, even though it is in the same movie franchise. Right, and that's exactly. why the, the Wallace Company buys the Tyrell Company. Exactly. So. And, it, it's, <laughs> and it's so – and I love how it's like physically embodied by this massive building that just sits yes. over top of everything. Yeah. And I got to tell you, man, like if you have the opportunity to watch the Blade Runner Final Cut that's on Netflix right now, Mm -hmm. it is awesome. Like the way that they've cleaned up the footage is so goddamn good, man. I've never I have never seen the movie look this fucking pretty. Okay, I'm definitely going to check that out then. Yeah. the, the, The headquarters of the Tyrell Company 
you will you have never seen th- that building look the way that it does that, that that's in this Netflix thing. Mm-hmm. It's uh, amazing. It's amazing. Awesome. Awesome. Um, I like that. I you know and and just to sort of piggyback off that real quick, the thought real quick. Um, in um, in the Man in the High Castle, which is another thing that fits in here, um, the uh, the German I can't remember what it's called, but like the essentially the German capital building mm-hmm. in the Man in the High Castle literally dwarfs every single thing around it, and it's yep. just this big physical reminder that like you are literally, figuratively, and literally living in the shadow of the Nazis. That's right. Yeah, that thing when they go to Berlin and stuff like that, it sticks out like a sore thumb. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe that that design that they used in the show was going to be what they were going yes. to build had they won the war. Yep, yep. That was maybe not quite as big, but it was going to be gigantic. It was yeah. They were going to have – like Hitler was really interested in Roman architecture. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually as, as Hitler and, and the Nazi regime took over, um, you know, prior to World War One or World War Two, starting, excuse me, um, like they began like rebuilding government buildings to look like this very large, intimidating, like Roman structures. I, I believe it. They yeah. milked psychological warfare for all its worth. Yep. Uh, like that one. Um, I went with, uh, the Republic of Gilead from the Hammond's, from the Handmaid's Tale. Um, oh. Margaret, Margaret Atwood's book specifically, but obviously the, the TV show too. Um, it's this all encompassing, basically it's, it's sort of, I don't want, I, I don't want to say it's that reflective of what's going on now because it's not, but it, it is sort of a, a warning about mm-hmm. sort of taking, taking, um, how society functions for granted and that we're really not that many steps away from becoming a very totalitarian, no, no government is that far away from becoming a totalitarian regime. It's not as many right. steps as you think to get there, basically. That's right. And, yeah. and, and the way it plays out in The Handmaid's Tale, it is over the course of several years, we are in this mega oppressive fascist regime and women are now subjugated within like five years. It's, doesn't take, it doesn't take long at all. Yeah, and believe me, if uh, I know that it's not reflective of how things are, but we could end up Something similar, things keep going the way they are. It's, Who knows? Yeah, exactly. It's what they serve as is like these are very, these are very obvious warnings about just being complacent about not you know when when someone is when someone is complaining about something, just you know brushing it off doesn't necessarily help. You, you know you know what I mean? Like marginalized yeah. groups when they complain about something, they complain about racism or redlining or not having clean water. Just pushing it off is like the function, you know, pushing it off is like what happens, is like the first step to becoming like these totalitarian regimes. Yeah, exactly. And we're seeing evidence of that in Flint with people not having clean drinking water. And you are definitely seeing a lot of voices not getting any attention right now. Like women, minorities, there's a lot of things going on right now that um, kind of are reminiscent of a totalitarian regime. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really not that far, and you could even I even thought about using the purge here too. That our our the at some point in time in the in the in the canon of the purge, that at some point in time our answer to like to crime was like, well, just let everyone kill each other, and it's like yeah. it's like no, that's not a good idea. That's actually like a really terrible idea. All crime <laughs> legal for one night is a terrible idea, but you could almost you could almost see it like sort of you could almost see it happening in in, in a certain way, like where well, if we just like. Who cares about fixing stuff if we can just let these other people violently fix it for themselves? Right. 
That's right. Yeah, the, the, that would never ever work in the purge. No, no. not at all. Uh, do, is there anything that you notice about uh, about the, the the body politic? The presence is one thing. Like they definitely have a commanding presence, and it, it may not be the big ass Wallace Corp building, even though that does look amazing in Blade mm. Runner twenty forty nine. It's the fact that anywhere you go in the story, you can somehow feel it, whether yeah. it be a person who has the ideology, the building, billboards, whatever it is, it's you're never not around it or yeah, you're never not. It's never not around you. Yeah, you there's there's never a point in time where you feel safe, never mm-hmm. a point in time where you feel safe. Um, and and I, I would say this too, like a lot of the times, a lot of the times in these uh, in these stories, the the group that is now being oppressed or marginalized, it's usually a surprising group. Like it's it's you know it, it's like it's inverted. So like a, it, you know it's it's women in the although I shouldn't say that's that surprising, but like the degree to which women are being oppressed in the Handmaid's Tale mm-hmm. is like you know way out of line. Um, right. You know, flip it like uh, just to go use a very very old example. Um, the original Planet of the Apes, it is about racism. And in the original Planet of the Apes, all of the characters that are, except for one, all the characters that are enslaved are white. And that's right. That's not a mistake. That's right. Yeah. I didn't think about that. You're entirely right on that. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to a fun one. The Mustache Twirler. I think everyone's heard of this before. Um, the Mustache Twirler is a, I guess you, it's a villain that like, he exists only as like a foil to the hero. There's not mm-hmm. really, you don't really get like a lot of depth necessarily. There's not really a ton of like, you don't really get too much into motivation. It's, it's basically villainy for the sake of villainy. Um, right. So I, th- I actually, and I think that this, this particular definition, I could be wrong, comes from Snidely Whiplash, a cartoon character. Okay. Um, I'm going to look this up real you're quickly. Right. I oh, know what you're talking about. And I've heard, I've seen that because when you Google mustache twirler, that's the first thing that comes up. Um, I and then if you scroll down on the, the Google page just a little bit, there's something about Reddit where it says in the silent movies, the villains had to have a signature look and almost like a signature gesture. So they landed on mustaches and the mustache twirling to identify the villain characters in silent movies. Okay. Okay. Well, actually, then okay, then it's an, then it actually predates Snidely Whiplash, but Snidely Whiplash is like one of the like it's like the first it's like one of the first pictures that pops up. But regardless, mm-hmm. the yeah the mustache twirler is is this very um, I'll, I'll go ahead and give mine right now. Pinky and the Brain, are oh, yeah. our mustache twirling villains that we that we follow around uh, you know as they as they try to quote unquote take over the world. Um, they're, they're I don't I don't think they really represent anything in particular, but like it's always played for comedy. Like there's there mm-hmm. are no serious mustache twirling villains. It's right. it's, it's comedic in nature. Um, like I said, like a lot of times it's just the, it's just the foil. It's just someone for the, for the hero to have fun with. Um, never take these characters seriously. Like there's rarely, is there a mustache twirling villain in something that's a little bit more somber? I gotcha. Yeah, yeah. You're definitely right on that. Yeah. And I went with, um, in the comedy realm again, Dr. Robotnik from Sonic the Hedgehog, Jim nice. Carrey, it's a comedy movie. Uh, the character basically out to destroy the world and kill the annoying blue hedgehog. I've heard it's pretty good for for a video game adaptation. I've actually heard it's fair, it's surprisingly entertaining as well. Yeah, it's making it's made some pretty good money, and um, there's hasn't been a whole lot of trouncing this movie. So anytime a movie's bad, believe me, we know about it, and that is not the case with Sonic. That that it, it blows my mind that like 
I've missed a lot of movies this past year, and I'm kind of tempted to go see Sonic the fucking Hedgehog. Yeah, isn't that nuts? <laughs> isn't that fucking nuts? <laughs> Jesus, where are my priorities? But yeah, there you go. Yeah, there's, and and I can say like right now, these there's not they're not really representative of anything in particular. It's just these these villains are always just sort of fun little little diversions, basically, in uh, in, in in any kind of comedy. So, of course. Yeah. All right, let's move on here to. I think these last couple are the fun ones as far as the villains go, like the ones that I really enjoy the most. Um, mm-hmm. We'll start with the mastermind. Um, in this case, the mastermind is someone who is orchestrating chaos um, with a with a very high amount of control. They're mm-hmm. the ones that are going to be in charge of your henchmen, your minions. Um, probably, probably the mastermind is the person sitting at the top of the body politic. Um, exactly. They they really have a, a very high level of control. So, uh, Chema, why don't you throw out your mastermind for me? We'll, we'll chew through this one. Okay, so I went with Sebastian Shaw, who was an early X Men villain, and um, oh yes, yes, he, okay. He's he's played by Kevin Bacon in X Men First Class, which mm-hmm. reminded me that Kevin Bacon can act because I was very very impressed with that performance. Mm-hmm. Like it still sticks out to me, and um, he has got a little gang of people that meet at the Hellfire Club, and in the movie X Men First Class, he is trying to orchestrate World War Three, and basically um, we see a superhero rendition of the Cuban Missile Crisis and the X-Men saved the day in the end but uh, what leads up to this war scene is strictly somebody moving the chess pieces like he's just in a boat drinking vodka hanging out with January Jones uh, for a while anyway until she gets captured and then um, it's he's basically watching the wheels he set in motion play out I couldn't think of a better Marvel mastermind that's a, it's a really good one too. And it does help that he's also extraordinarily powerful, but, True. but, uh, like that's, we don't really it's find secondary. Exactly. It's so secondary to the mastermind element of it. Like you don't even in the, in X-Men first class, you don't even find out he has powers exactly. till 40 minutes into it. So Ex- yeah, exactly. That was, as I was going to say, like we don't find, we don't even find out how powerful he is until like it, he actually has to do something. Otherwise mm-hmm. he lets everyone else do, do all of his quote unquote dirty work. Exactly. I, it's a great example. Um, I, I, I went with uh, went with old. I went old school here. Uh, Professor James Moriarty, uh, Sherlock Holmes' ultimate villain, ultimate uh, rival, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a mathematician, like a very gifted mathematician, like one of the best in the world um, in in Sherlock Holmes canon, uh, probably probably the best in the world. And he simply realizes that the like the London gang scene is could be easily literally just through his own computations and algorithms he begins like tracking and charting certain crime and certain criminals and he realizes that it's so scattered and disorganized that just a smart person could take over and kind of control it and Mm -hmm. within a matter of months he leaves his you know he leaves his position at i can't i think he's at oxford leaves his position at oxford and then becomes the the main underground villain in all of all of england and he does it simply by basically just showing showing other criminals the numbers, telling them how to do things, telling them how to who they should kill, who they should rob, where money should be. He does it all without doing anything physically. Yeah, isn't it fucking amazing? And mm-hmm. dude, Jared Harris crushed it in the Sherlock Holmes movie as that guy. I thought, and he, they made him all like um, they gave him a little bit of physical prowess too. They made him a boxer and everything. Mm-hmm. And um, the Moriarty is a classic. It's such a classic that. The phrase "somebody's Moriarty" is yep. like 
a term that is used like in, in literature and conversation. Like it's a, basically like a staple of how you describe the, the mastermind villain. They, um, one of my favorite, it's actually two episodes, um, of Star Trek, the next generation, uh, you know, the first Picard Star Trek, mm-hmm. um, in, you know, they have the holodeck. Yeah. Um, and you know, they incorporated it into that series. So on the holodeck, um, you know, uh, uh, Picard loves to live out these like, um, detective novels. Like that's his thing. And mm-hmm. they, I can't remember if someone was trying to program the holodeck to make, um, to make Picard like a more worthy villain, um, than the ones that he kind of defeats in his normal, uh, you know, his normal exploits. But like, they basically, you know, they give, they give Moriarty the, the intelligence that Moriarty would have had. And he figures out a way to make himself real on the ship. Like, so he, so his influence can like spread beyond the, um, beyond the holodeck. And the only way that, like, and this is what I'm going to get into here, the only way that they can end up defeating him, if you will, is by letting him defeat himself. And I think that's, like, the biggest, that's the biggest thing that I notice from these Mastermind characters. They are usually so locked down and tight on what they're doing that the only way that they can be beaten is to beat themselves. Wow, I never really thought about it like that before. And number one, I got to say that I'm very happy that you brought up that Star Trek reference because it just shows how fucking genius the writing yeah. is on that show that they could take something like Picard's little like things that he does in his spare time and make an episode out of it. That it's actually a really, sounds it's a pretty really fucking good episode too. It's yeah. A great episode. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's nuts. But the idea of them being so into it that they just defeat themselves, like in many ways, like I never thought about it like that before. Like the, you're really, really on point. I think you're hitting something on the head with, um, with, with, with that. Yeah. I guess like, it's one of those things like, like, how do I, how, how should I explain this? You can, it's really easy to defeat. I shouldn't say it's easy, but like a henchman that like is super strong, you know, there's a weakness there, right? There's a physical weakness. Maybe he's slow. Mm-hmm. So you can use his slowness against him. Or yeah. maybe the henchman is, you know, it's a Kung Fu guy who's super fast, but is smaller. So you can use your own physical strength against them. But like right. in, in the case of a mastermind, like they have, and in, in, in at least a well-written mastermind, they are ahead of you all the time. So the only way that you can defeat them is either somehow to become smarter than them, which is usually not the case, or you got to let them play the game out to a point where they, they make an error, they make a mistake, and they self-defeat. Mm-hmm. That's the only way you can get through them. Yeah, and I noticed that whenever the mastermind is defeated it's usually by some small mistake that they had made some, the one thing that mm-hmm. they didn't think about, you know? Right. Exactly. Um, and there's, I just, to, I'll do this again real quickly. There's an episode of uh, fringe where a character has his intellect boosted so high. He can actually predict like through, like watching me do something. He can predict what's going to happen an hour from now. Like I gotcha. One movement affects the ne- butterfly effect. Basically one movement mm-hmm. affects the next affects the next. And he's so brilliant that this guy can see things way, way down the line. Like he, I I forgot exactly why he's killing people, but he kills people by, and it's in an alternate universe, which we can get into, but, um, which is actually, it's important here. He kills people by placing a pen, which they don't have in his reality, placing a pen and like the pen falls and Mm -hmm. someone stops to see what it is. And it creates this whole chain of events that kills somebody. And, he was going to be successful, except for he doesn't realize that one of our main characters is not from his reality. So they don't take into account something that they, that someone from his reality would have taken into account. I gotcha. And dude, 
fucking a once again fringe i love that we uh continue with the fringe drops on the show and it's amazing how they're able to create something that is just once again like a, a brilliant theory with alternate realities and one thing affecting another and yeah. stuff like it's just unbelievable that the, the genius in some of these writers yeah no absolutely it's that's that's sort of like one of those things that like it sort of tells you like the level that certain writers are working on and why mm-hmm. it's hard to become a writer in Hollywood. Like, yeah, like Damon Lindelof is operating on a different level than everyone else. Um, JJ Arab is operating on a different level. There's people just operating on different levels than other people. Yeah, exactly. Dude. Like I, one day I would love to get there. Right. Right. I, I, you gotta, you gotta try. The only way you can get there is to try to do it. Exactly. Um, do you know, do you think that the mastermind is representative of anything? I think the, the mastermind is representative of, like, I guess, a solution to an extreme solution to a problem that we all face. Like, anytime, like, take like, um, God, I can't really think, but anytime, like, that there is like a plot to do something to humanity, the, the mastermind always has like a reason for it. And there's usually like some highbrow reason. Like there's something that's even beyond your and I's scope of thought where he believes that like people are, people are worthless or people are this and they should be made to suffer or something like that. And I think that he is definitely a representation of a very, very extreme solution to problems that we face. Okay. I like that. I think um, I, I kind of mentioned it before, briefly earlier with Odysseus, that um, in a lot of stories, his intellect is looked at as something as, as being bad, that mm-hmm. being too smart is maybe a bad thing. And I think a lot of I think that gets carried over into a lot of stories um, just as sort of it's just like sort of like an artifact from a lot of stories that just like if you're and you can apply that to a lot of things if you're too smart if you're mm-hmm. too big and strong, if you're too rich, it's just never a good thing to have to be like one extreme, I guess. Yeah, I got you, dude. I definitely understand. Um, th- this is, I think this is going to be my favorite one here, The Mirror. Um, and this is, a, 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 this is like a half creation of mine. Um, I pulled from some other stuff. I just didn't like, also didn't like the way they, I also didn't like the way they, they kind of use this term. But regardless, The Mirror, um, a simultaneous perfect match to our hero, but like an inverse. So mm-hmm. they're going to have a lot of the same characteristics. There's going to be some key differences, and there's going to be one difference that like is the exact polar opposite of of our hero. So um, I'll, I'll I will I'll start this one off here. Um, in uh, in the Matrix movies, we have Neo as the hero, Agent Smith as his mirror. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's this is this is one of those ones that is highly symbolic. It, a lot of times it's the, I would, I'd say generally speaking, it's sort of like a look at like what could have happened if the hero didn't choose the heroic path, that they could have ended up exactly like this guy. So of course, in, in, it just used, again, use the matrix. Neo could have just sort of acquiesced to what agent Smith wanted and he could have gone living his life as a piece of a computer program, um, like him or, you know, obviously he becomes Neo, he becomes the one. Um, but you know, like there's in in any story where you have like a mirror, there's got to be a choice probably given by the mirror to the hero. Do you want to become like me or do you want to become something different? Yeah. And there is because he does give him the choice, right? Doesn't Agent Smith in the first one kind of present him with the option like, hey, follow me and learn or you well, kind of ne- they uh, fight? Morpheus gives him like the red pill, blue pill option 
But right. But like when he gets when they first capture Neo, he basically just tells him just to you know he basically presents all this information that Morpheus is a terrorist. Um, okay. He kills people. He's terrible. You don't need to go down that path. You don't need to become one of these terrorists. Just okay. Live your life as uh, what's his, uh, John Anderson. Just live your life as John Anderson. Don't worry about. Yeah. Don't worry about becoming Neo. Right, I got you. And yet, there's usually the whole like kind of join me moment in um, yeah. in in these movies and with these characters and yep. stuff. Yeah, you're you're right for sure. Uh, yeah, that's a re- oh sorry. Okay. Oh no, I was I was just gonna say I really like the Matrix example, and it's just another one of these things with the Matrix being so layered and so I, just so rich with discussion and interpretations and metaphor and stuff like that. It's hands down like just such a landmark oh, yeah. uh, landmark franchise, and mine is um is is definitely not from a landmark franchise. I'm going with Captain Pollution who is the mirror to Captain Planet. Of course. And, <laughs> yes. Uh, who, uh, believe me, da, 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 who would have thought, right? <laughs> but um, in the Captain Planet cartoon, at one point in time, they introduce this villain, Captain Pollution, who looks exactly like Captain Planet, except he's more rugged and kind of looks like a kind of chemical thing went wrong. But he has like the same hair and the, the same face and everything. He's summoned by... Uh, another set of rings that are like, you know, pollution based rings. So instead of earth, air, fire, water, it's like, you know, a toxic waste, whatever, 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 whatever. And um, he and Captain Planet fight each other. And it basically looks like two Captain Planets duking it out on your TV screen. And uh, while he's not the show's signature villain, like it's, it's definitely like somebody like greedily or Dr. Blight or something like that. Mm-hmm. But it is for Captain Planet the best uh, example of a mirror. Yeah, no, I, I dig. I do. I, I totally forgot about Captain Pollution too. And it's in and in that case, it's like a very. And this is this is true with like when I was looking at some other examples of the mirror. That's like a lot of a lot of times it is like they are physically the same, or mm-hmm. they are diametrically opposed. Um, it, it's a really like fascinating sort of. This like the story that I'm writing now. The villain, the main villain, is a mirror. Like it is. A oh, complete, nice. Complete. Um, they're they're sort of born of the same uh, of the of the same. They have the same origin, basically. Which is again, you'll find that in stories with the mirror. They have mm-hmm. a lot of times they have the same origin. Something just happened to one or the other. Um, and I just I think this is such a fascinating archetype um, that this again this definitely isn't new. You could even say that Moriarty is a mirror for Sherlock Holmes. Um, in, in, in many ways, but I think the, I think the way, I think the last like 20 years or so, even 25 years, the mirror has just become a very, very good storytelling device to give, obviously we mentioned how villains have great depth, um, or like at least there's more room for depth, but you can mm-hmm. explore heroic depth by having a mirror. Yeah. Yeah, dude, definitely. You're right on that. And you could even go the Mortal Kombat route where you go mirror on mirror on mirror on mirror, where you have Sub-Zero, Scorpion, Reptile, and Smoke. There, so you, there's, there you go. <laughs> oh, Reptile. Um, I, I would love, by the way, I would love to do a, maybe our next cinema dissection should be the Mortal Kombat movie. Oh, I would, the original one? <laughs> yeah, the original oh, one. Oh, God, yeah, well, fucking course. Any, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm there, sign me up for it. I, right. saw that in the the, I saw that in the theater. I saw that, like, I saw that twice in the theater, and I remember being over at, I think we were at RJ Soul's house for for a birthday, and just mm-hmm. jamming that soundtrack, like, to on the fucking tens while we're all hanging oh, out. Oh, yeah. 
Oh yeah, man. That's a, that is, we'll save some time in the, the, that episode to talk about the soundtrack because for what that is, which is basically just jacked up techno music and yelling mortal Kombat over and over again, it's pretty fucking good. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Oh, any, any other, like any other features or anything else you notice about, about the mirror? Uh, the, the similarity in appearance was one thing that I, that Mm -hmm. first uh, came to my mind. The other thing is, um, yeah, I think you touched it. Is that like maybe at one point in time they were on the same path, but they broke off. There was some kind of cataclysmic event that separated the two of them. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes that that happens in stories, but th- those are the things that I had as my um, other example, my other features. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I also uh, just sort of added a lot of times the the mirror, whatever the mirror's motivations are, are the hero's motivations. Like they they probably have the same motive. The mirror is just looking at it from a different angle. I gotcha. Like the mirror also wants world peace, but he thinks the way to do it is to kill half the population. Yeah, I gotcha. Exactly. exactly. Um, and this is this is uh, and this is one of the ones that's very very new um, because this is a a type that I, I I stole I stole the name the other hero, uh, but like it's a very new type um, that I shouldn't say it's very new, but like in terms of its emergence as a uh, as a as a, a staple character, it's definitely newer. Um, but the other hero, it's uh, you could if you change the point of view of a story, this this antagonist would be heroic, or mm-hmm. at least most of his actions would look hello- heroic as opposed to villainous. Um, so why don't you why don't you go ahead and start me out with your you know your other hero? Okay, so I'm throwing it back to the uh, Blade Runner Final Cut that's now on Netflix, mm-hmm. and I realized that. If you tell the story from the replicant's perspective, yep. Roy's like the tragic hero here. Yep. He's the guy who's trying to help his friends live longer and everything. And you could actually still have every single thing in the movie, the Blade Runner element. You could have Voinkamp, mm-hmm. the Tyrell Corporation. You could have it all. But instead of building up Harrison Ford's character in the beginning, you show like – Maybe the um, the replicants getting through the Nexus Six, like getting through the Tannhauser Gate and mm-hmm. landing in Los Angeles. Like, what? How they? You know, why were they being held captive to one area? Why did they have to break? Why is it even considered them breaking free from where they are? So, I think that um, with just some very very simple retellings in the beginning. You could have that movie where Harrison Ford is the antagonist and Roy and uh, Roy's the hero and Daryl Hannah and um, the uh, two other replicants that we see are the his supporting um, cast. I, I mean, you could. Uh, I love this, by the way. Um, I actually just for just because I love that scene so much, the the ending scene with uh, the tears in the rain speech. Um, mm-hmm. I just watched it today. Think about it this way: the, this is a story about slaves who are being forced into war forced into prostitution, forced into manual labor, escaping, escaping their masters, and now the company that made them is sending someone to kill them. That's right. This is that's the, exactly, if you yeah. flip this around, this is a very heroic story for Roy Batty and and the Nexus 6. Yeah, and dude, I'm very happy that you watched that Tears in the Rain thing cuz my god isn't that that's fucking like beautiful almost. It like it's I guess over time, like not necessarily when I was in my young, because I don't think I actually watched Blade Runner completely, at least till like where I can conscious remember it. So like it was in my thirties, and that scene has just become more and more beautiful over the course of time. Like there's things that you you're paying attention to that you don't really pay attention to before, and it could be anything from the tone in his voice to the way that the 
fucking rain makes his hair look right before the final turn off and stuff like that. It's just so iconic. He, Rucker Howard plays him sort of, I always feel like, like when I, whenever I watch that scene, Rucker Howard plays him like he's sad. He mm-hmm. is really sad that not necessarily that his life is, I mean, that his life is ending obviously, but he's like sad that like all of his experiences and all that he could experience is just gone now. Like it's yeah, in such a short period of time, and it, like when you watch it, the first I think the first time I watched Blade Runner all the way through, like the, I can't even remember which cut. There's like a thousand cuts, um, mm-hmm. but like the first time I watched it all the way through, I think I was like in my twenties, early twenties, and so yeah, early twenties because I think there was like a there was like a new cut that came out like in either two thousand five or six. Um, okay, and I think that might have been the one that I watched first, and but as I've gotten older and seen that movie now multiple times. It like you cannot help but feel fucking bad for all these for all the replicants and Deckard for that matter. Um, right, you just can't help but feel bad for them. Like everything mm-hmm. they went through that they didn't have a choice in. Yeah, man, and like him kind of shorting out and like you know going crazy and stuff like that towards the end. It's I don't know. It's just it just it's just such this great picture of like one last kind of final struggle to like stay alive and feel things like he's the nails in his hands and everything. Yeah. Like it's just such this, a really profound statement on like the value of life and trying to cling on to it for all it's worth. Yeah, absolutely. Dude, such a good choice. Such a good choice. I hope mine can live up to this actually. Um, <laughs> but I went uh, much more recent um, in terms of our other hero. I went uh, with Killmonger from black Panther. Oh, good. Dude, that's a good choice. If you really break it down, um, I'll, I'll go through this real quickly. This is a guy who rose up after his father was killed um, by an unknown assailant. Uh, he rises up from the projects. I think they were in Oakland, correct? Correct. Yeah, rises up from the projects in Oakland, uh, serves in the U.S. military, becomes one of the military's best assets um, in terms of uh, infiltration. And I think he works at the CIA at this point, actually. Um, becomes one of their best assets and then goes back to his kingdom that he was, you know, rightfully a part of plays by their rules and wins the throne and Mm -hmm. is now dedicating his time to uh, dedicating the resources of Wakanda to help these sort of depressed, depressed, uh, uh, these depressed peoples, depressed groups of peoples around the world. That's right. When you paint it like that, it doesn't sound that terrible. (laughs) Um, No, it doesn't. Um, yeah. So like, I mean, you know, Killmonger has, there's a good idea at the end, and actually they end up doing that. Wakanda ends up opening itself up to the rest of the world. And mm-hmm. there's a good idea there. It's just the way he goes about it is fucking terrible. But even in even in the course of, you know, kind of being, you know, this brute, he still plays by their rules. He at no point in time deviates from anything other than, like, when he's burning the, uh, you know, the plant that gives him the power. I can't remember what it's called now. Um, mm-hmm. Other than that, like there is no point in time does he do anything that is that is against the rules of Wakanda. That's right, and that right there is why I think Killmonger is such a well-rounded villain and one of, if not the best Marvel villains. I think oh. you're in a two-way street between him and Thanos, yeah, like, for sure, and a two-way race. Sorry, um, but they make him so goddamn relatable through all of it, and this is somebody who's done things that like you and I never will do militarily all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Like it's just, we've aged out of it, you know? And, but the core of who he is as a person was so relatable of just this, this little kid whose father was killed and, you know, he's left to fend on his own and everything. It's this thing that, well, 
not all people can relate to that specific situation. I think a lot of people can definitely relate to like loss and maybe the feeling of being alone or something like that. And like not necessarily knowing like what the next day is going to be like. And because they were able to establish these connections with the audience in him early on, it made him a well-rounded villain throughout. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe they were going to keep him on for like Black Panther 2 or something like that. There was some kind of plan at one point in time to uh, to have him be in the sequel and maybe like he becomes good and they work together type stuff. But I feel that the movie would have been different yeah. had he would have lived. I you strongly know? prefer him dying and talk about a good death. Like you, even though like he did, you know, in many ways pervert Wakanda and what they kind of stand for, his his death is still like tragic. It is still very mm-hmm. tragic, and he gives. Right. A, and I know I've said it before. He gives a fucking line in a Disney movie about being buried at sea with the rest of his slave ancestors. Yeah, that's like, right. That's yeah, fucking yeah, yeah. dude. That's intense. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and like once again, it's just another thing about the characters, and oddly, like this really intelligent way to send him off and something that does stay true to him or st- his death stays true to his life. Yeah. I guess. Ex- yeah. A hundred Exactly. Exactly. All, all, all again, all it took was just a, just one little change of POV and this movie is a very different movie. Right. Um, any, uh, Oh, uh, in, in, in terms of like something representative, the other hero is definitely a representative sort of, um, um, archetype here. Do you, do you have anything like in terms of, uh, you know, what it means beyond, you know, beyond the, the screen or whatever. I think that it means that some villains are so well-rounded and some situations are so well-crafted that you're able to sympathize with these people to a certain degree. And it thus leaves the door open for a greater conversation, not just about the movie you're watching, but about like almost like the state of almost like your own state of being, I think like where I feel that if you're, if you're, you're not able to like sympathize with a madman killing a bunch of people, you're not sympathizing with that act, but you are sympathizing with maybe their situation and stuff and like where they came from, which I think many ways makes you more human. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I a hundred percent agree with that. Absolutely. And I, and I think, and I think these characters are, um, I think these characters are also to show you that like, that not, not all motives, not all, um, actions are, can really be painted as black and white, that there's so much gray area into the reasons why people do things that it, it, it it's, there's so much gray area that it's sometimes hard to distinguish mm-hmm. between something that's heroic and something that's villainous. That's right. That's very, very true, dude. It's like the whole, like, if a guy steals to feed his family type thing, yep. like, it, it hits you differently than finding out somebody just stole $60 million and had a fucking fun time with it. Right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like, there's there's a difference between between Bernie Madoff and Robin Hood. A exactly. significant difference. Yes. Um, even though they both stole from the rich. Anyway. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Um, and, and here's something I noticed about the other hero is that like a lot of times, especially in the case of Killmonger, but a lot of times they were probably victims first. 
that they mm-hmm. were a victim of some kind of circumstance that they're either trying to fix or they blame whatever it is. Like Killmonger is a victim of what he perceives as being, you know, just he's he feels like he's a victim of Wakanda, but also a victim of like the consequence of being a black man in America. Yeah, of course, definitely. Yeah, he feels it twice. Yep. Um, do you, oh, anything else here with the other hero that you noticed, or anything else? Uh, nothing more. Like, yeah, nothing more than that. Usually, okay. just that these char- these villains are just better written villains, I guess. I, I think when you, like I said, these last three are like are my favorites anyway, and I think mm-hmm. the last two especially offer the most exploration of why someone is a villain, um, how you you know how you become a villain, how it how it works, I guess, like sort of the inner workings of a villain. And I yeah. think these two also offer the best exploration for our heroes too. That you can, through them, you can kind of understand heroism better. Because as we said, sometimes sometimes heroes, and as we get to this list of hero things, there's one that we can skip over real quickly because there's mm-hmm. not that much that's interesting about them. But I gotcha. When you pair them with something, when you pair them with a mirror, you pair them with another hero or the other hero, it makes them more interesting because they then you have to at least question like what they're doing too. Yeah, of course. I, I definitely.